Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. <laughs> the ladies not for turning. Restlessness is discontent, and discontent is the first necessity of progress. Show me a thoroughly satisfied man, and I'll show you a failure, is a quote by the American inventor and businessman Thomas Edison. I thought this was an apt quote for our guest today. Someone whose quest for perfection on and off the field has led him to remarkable achievements. Our guest today is David Kirk, MBE, co-founder and chairman of ASX-listed investment fund Bailador Technology Investments. David also serves as chairman of KMD Brands, Foresight Bar, Kiwi Harvest, the New Zealand Food Network and Sydney Festival. He was previously CEO of Fairfax Media and PMP Limited. David also enjoyed a successful rugby career. As captain of the New Zealand All Blacks, he led the team to victory in the inaugural Rugby World Cup in 1987. He continues to be involved with the game as the president of the New Zealand Rugby Players Association. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite, world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you can apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in New Zealand, France, and England, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, Board and Executive Search Firm. In an erudite discussion, David shares his journey. The doctor who led the All Blacks to victory in the first ever Rugby World Cup before abruptly retiring to pursue a Rhodes Scholarship at Oxford, then to working closely with the New Zealand Prime Minister and to later leading high-profile public companies. We cover the turning points in a storied career, gain glimpses into the world of high performance and tackle the nuances of leadership as well as the important issues facing society today. So sit back and enjoy the divine discontent. David, welcome to the show. I'm pleased to be here. Easy question to start with. What is leadership? What is leadership? Wow. <laughs> Easy question to start with. Well, leadership is, is the capacity to engage a group of people on a common venture, to want to do something together, to achieve something, uh, and to stick with it and to deliver. Do you really see a lot of it? Uh, I think there's a lot of leadership, yeah. I think it's done, yeah, there are better and worse leaders. It's done, um, the major distinction, particularly in the business environment, but but definitely in broader environment too, is between management and leadership. Management is the organization of people in the right way and the 
and the setting of goals and the, the, the monitoring of performance against those goals and, and so on. So a process in that sense. Yeah, that's a process. But add to that leadership. If you want to, if you want to be a leader, you've got to do more than that. You've got to do that. You've got to do all of that. You need to run an efficient ship as a leader, but you've also got to inspire people to achieve. They've got to want to be part of the venture, part of what we're, part of what, um, something exciting and, and something they can actually sign up to mind and body, you know, um, heart and body as well. Leadership is about engaging people's hearts and desires as well as their, you know, understanding that, um, this is something that they need to do to achieve success. So why do I see in some commentary from yourself, maybe a number of years back that world-class leadership or world-class high performance maybe is exceptionally rare and you've been a part of world-class efforts. Yes. Well, I think in that, you're probably referring to the article I wrote from the McKinsey Quarterly years ago now on world-class teams. Really that world-class teams was a, was really referring to the best in the world, the best there's ever been yep. in a way. And that, so there is by, by definition at that very peak, there are only a few teams uh, and therefore players in those teams who, who can be considered the best they've ever been. And obviously as time goes on, that there are other teams that, that challenge that, you know, the thought that that might've been the best team that's ever been. But, uh, so I was really referring to, you know, the, the, the real pinnacle teams in that. Okay. So then for corporate Australia or those setting up their business or those going for an IPO or coming out of COVID the last period of time, how do you build a world-class team in business then and use that, as you say, heart, mind, soul to yeah, get well, the best. Yeah, well, much has changed in my thinking since on this for a long, for a long time. And I've had a lot of experience and seen a lot of things. But my experience with, with rugby and with the All Blacks and winning the Rugby World Cup is just sort of still the baseline best experience I've had of, of a world-class team and being able to use the principles that I understood then and apply them in, in other places. So the sorts of things that are the fundamentally important in building world-class teams are having a shared vision, a belief about what you're there to achieve together. And that can be quite complex. We can go into more detail on that if you like. Yeah. But sometimes it's more of a proper, a comprehensive vision combines a sort of short-term missions, like we're going to win the World Cup, we're going to win the pennant, we're going to win the grand final, whatever it might be, in one season. That's a short-term approach with a bigger vision about what you're trying to achieve in your short period as a, as a sports person. Uh, a vision about how well the game can be played and how you can play. Yep. It's about your own personal like the beautiful potential. game type thing. Yeah, so exactly. Um, so there's, so th there's that. Another really important one is capability. If you want to build a world-class team, you do actually have to select and train great people or great players. In business, it's a bit easier in a way because a lot of the requirements of becoming world-class in what you do in business, you're not necessarily born with them. Whereas in sport, people are born with you know, size, shape, speed, skills, largely. So obviously to get to the very top, you've got to work really hard on them. But for most people in business, you can learn what it is to be world-class, what it is to be the best. And it's a combination of learning how to, um, you know, just what are the you know, the important things in this type of job I've got to do if you're in sales or product or whatever it might be. You've got to learn specific things about that job. But but also it's then about you know, opening your horizon to how you can lead in your own way. And we can come back to Leadership is not just about the leader, it's about um, leadership embedded in organizations. So there's, there's, there's a range of uh, things there, but that's really about a capability and ability, which is fundamental to broadcast teams. Next, I would say, um, which is kind of a bit old-fashioned, really, but it's about, it's, uh, I've called it discipline. And you're going to say writing, that? Yeah. yeah. But it's needed. But it's about, yeah, it's about being organized, being structured, being disciplined, 
being dedicated. You know, it's sport again, very easy. When you cross that white line for, for training, go on the playing field. There's nothing else that matters but executing and training and playing and, and listening and being accurate. And it's an old saying that it's not practice that makes perfect. It's perfect practice that makes perfect. So you've got that dedicated focus on being perfect when, you, when you're training uh, and learning and growing uh, as a team through that. But also off the field and in all sorts of different ways, being disciplined and organized and, and hardworking is, is just fundamental. The other phrase I've used in, in the past is, is um, the next thing is divine discontent. Yeah, I saw Me- that. Yeah. I love, Me- that, exp- love yeah, that expression. M- meaning that you're never happy. You never feel as if you've, you've really achieved what you can achieve. So you're constantly driving yourself on. This is the seeking perfection. Yeah, seeking perfection, yeah. All the best teams I've played for in rugby, and I'm thinking here about the Auckland Provincial team during that period, the All Blacks, clearly, and other teams too, New Zealand Sevens and, and a range of other teams i played for. You know, invariably, I and most of the other top players, when we finished a game, and we because we were it was a very strong team, we usually won, almost invariably won, but people would go into the changing rooms and they'd just sit down on the little bench seats they used to have around the side of the rooms, um, and you just sit there and you just reflect on the game, think about the game. And what most people were doing was thinking about their mistakes, <laughs> thinking about the things they did wrong. And for me, it was missing touch. If I was kicking for touch, it was a poor pass. It was a bad decision. Should have gone blindside, shouldn't have done that. Or it was a missed tackle. It was just, it was just all of those things you could add up. And you could, you could count them. You knew how many times you'd thrown a bad pass. You just remembered it and you wanted to eliminate that from your game. So you were basically training yourself to eliminate errors, to eliminate mistakes and to be perfect. And funnily enough, you, you become great, if you like, you become the best player you can be by doing the little things well, by eliminating errors, by, by being so focused on executing to perfection that sooner or later, that's what, that's what happens. If you just, you, you dream about it all the time, think, I want to be perfect and I want to do this, I want to do that. You don't get there. You've got to focus on just the little things, little bit basic boring things that you get right every time. And that leads to that sort of perfection. The one thing that worries me a little about talking to people about divine discontent is that it makes it feel like you're a bit miserable. You never, you never, you never get there. You never succeed. That it wears you down because you've just relentlessly trying to be better than you are. And kind of in a way that is right. Mm. You see a lot of sports people, it's, they're always trying to be better. You think of the great tennis players and golfers and The millimeters, the edges, right, the inches, yeah. et cetera. Yep. It's not super fun all the time. Um, but the, but in a way, we, we I think we did it quite well because we quarantined it to some extent to that sort of five minutes sitting down there on the on the seats in the changing sheds, thinking about it, focusing on it. And then we could let it go. And then we could go, when we go back to training, we're back into that focus and that desire. Okay. But you were out there at that time to win a World Cup, right? Or beat the Australians in a local trophy. Yeah. Let's look up that one's called. I know what it's called. Yeah. <laughs> but- you're a CEO motivating a business to what? To get the PL numbers looking yeah. excessively well. Yeah. Do you actually in any time engender that team spirit? And if so, how do you create it in the core? Because it is very, very different. Yeah, it is. I know what you're saying, but truthfully, does it really manifest itself into corporates? Yeah. And it does in a way, but not in the same way, not in the not in the pure way uh, of sport. One of the thing, great things about sport is you get so much feedback, so much you know, performance review by the newspapers, by coaches, by your teammates all the time. 
And that's, that's an interesting thing, an important thing for, for organizations to think about because for business organizations to think about because that feedback really does feed a positive loop. Obviously, it needs to be done positively and often the media doesn't do it positively, but you have to just learn to deal with that. So that's that's slightly by the by. Back to the application of these principles in, in business and is it is it really the same? Um, it's not. And you're motivating people to achieve numbers in a way that's not the, that is the outcome that is that is what you're trying that's what to get measured by sometimes yeah aren't that's it? what you're getting measured on but everyone knows in, in business and good leaders inculcate this in people is the numbers are achieved through a whole bunch of actions which involve people and which involve decisions and all sorts of decisions they can be creative decisions if you're in a you know um, I'm the chairman of Camdy brands which is the holding company for Katmandu, rip curl and oboes an American footwear brand and you know so much of what we of what the company does is about the brand about developing the brand which is you know, inherently a marketing and a, and not a numbers based thing in the first place but also about developing product about being creative and 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 product and living and loving the product so you have to go the layer below the numbers to inspire people to have people want to get up in the morning and come to work and do the very best they can and that goes one layer and another layer again and we can spend some more time on this but it's really in the end it's about values and culture people work in an organization because they share the values of that culture they want to add to the values they want to they want to be someone who's seen to exemplify the, the values and all of that put together leads to a culture which is and for culture who said and who sets that well obviously uh the organization emanates the culture. So the jersey gets passed down? Yeah, well, the jersey or the, yeah, we, we can come back to the sport, but I'm thinking in a business context, clearly leaders need to be able to- No, I'm thinking about the CEO similar, similar to C- sport. Yeah. You're passing, yeah. one CEO comes in in three to five yeah. years, it's almost passing the jersey over in, in, yeah, in, in many ways, but having their imprint, right? Yeah, and organizations, good organizations, lasting organizations, have cultures that definitely transcend individual leaders over um, individual points of time. Because, you know, the culture is based on what the whole organization does. Leaders don't sit. Well, leaders can wreck the culture mm-hmm. um, and leaders cannot exemplify values, but the whole organization has to live the values and, and, and be the sort of organization they want to be or be the sort of organization they tell themselves they are if culture is going to be a really powerful influence in the organization and last over time. Did you expect to win the Web Ellis Trophy? On Heart um, of Hearts in 87? It depends when, I mean, when you would have asked me. Because um, it was pretty tumultuous before, times up yeah, to that point, wasn't it? Before we started, when we, when we, the final game before we played the first game of the World Cup in 1987 was against France and Nantes and we lost. And we oh, lost. that's the battle. Yeah, the battle. And we were bashed up. <laughs> and uh, they just physically completely uh, outplayed us. We'd, we'd, we'd done well and won in Toulouse the week before, but they physically um, ran over the top of us and there were a lot of injuries. That was and brutal, that game. It was brutal, it? absolutely brutal. And, you know, we didn't deserve to win, and, and they did deserve to win, they played well. So, you know, we were pretty much down, and it had been a difficult year, 1986, with, mm. with the uh, Cavaliers to South Africa, and then a yep. lost home series to Australia. Yep. So, you know, we were coming off a bit of a bit of a dip. Yep. So... And the nation was... Where was the nation at at the time? Oh, the nation was very split, actually. Pretty negative. I would say more negative than positive. I saw stats that 70% of New Zealanders had turned off, which you can't... Yeah. Fathom in today's culture. Yeah. Well, I mean, they sort of hadn't turned off for good, but they turned off for now. 
because the circumstances that had happened in 1986 in particular. It was only two of you. Yeah, there was just, just really angered and annoyed a lot of people because it wasn't consistent with the, with they th- what they thought the All Blacks stood for. And the values of that, right? Yeah, and the honesty and, you know, they went off to South Africa. I mean, people didn't, people didn't particularly, I don't think people particularly begrudged the fact that the players went to South Africa to, to play rugby. You know, their the choice, they can go, yeah. yeah. But the whole thing about money and, and were they getting paid and all of that and the denials and the yeah. New Zealand rugby union seeming to just sweep it under the carpet quickly and and want to move on and so on. You know, that none of that was consistent with what they, what New Zealanders considered to be the values that the All Blacks should be. So why didn't you go? Well, I didn't go because I didn't think it was the right thing to do. Simple moral thing? Yeah, I mean, it's moral, um, but also the money thing. Yep, they were offering money. Yeah. And um, I didn't want to, because you couldn't have played any rugby afterwards if you had admitted that you'd taken money. Yep. So I didn't want to come back to New Zealand having taken money and then come and say, oh no, and have to lie to people. So, but both, both moral components that obviously at that stage, it was becoming very clear that boycott was hurting South Africa, that sports boycotts were hurting South Africa and it was helping to drive change in South Africa and would continue to do so. So I I wanted to support that, but at the same time, I didn't want to be in a position where I had to, you know, not tell the truth about having taken money. When those guys came back, they did get reselected over time. They did come back to the team. They did, and, yeah. And you're, a, you're the guy who didn't go and you're the skipper. Wouldn't have been easy. That's been the hard, that's the hardest period of my Must have been hardest. leadership. Yeah. So how in, tough in was anything? it? I've had some fairly tough times in leadership and business, actually, because <laughs> being in businesses that have had challenging circumstances and, and um, it's hard to, you know, you're trying, you're trying to lead as well as you can, but, you know, the business is not doing as well as you want it to do. So we can... We can come back to that if you like, but but the hard, really the hardest thing for me, particularly because I was also pretty young, I was yeah. twenty five, yeah, and pretty inexperienced, and and a little bit different. Yeah, well, I was yeah, well, I hadn't gone to South Africa. That was one difference, but also I was a university student yeah. and had gone through as a, was a medical doctor, was practicing at, at that time in a hospital, just doing my last years of my training. So yeah, you're right. In New Zealand, you know, the culture of New Zealand, if you like, or the which it's 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 probably changed a bit now. It wasn't particularly accepting of. That's right. I don't know academics, intellectuals, yeah. people who had who had other kind of interests outside. So, so old school comes back in the town, and I've got this young bloke, yeah, well, smart guy who's. I'm not sure it was particularly to do with attributes of me, except for, which is also which is actually quite understandable, in, in a culture like that, which where you've got to really earn, and particularly even more than today, you really had to earn your spurs. You had to earn earn respect which means you had to play regularly yep. and you had to play well. Yep. And people had to see, well, this guy's really up to it. He is a, he's a good All Black. He's a top All Black. And I was on that journey and I had played some games and yep. the All Blacks clearly uh, played quite a lot of games, non-test games, because we, I went on a lot of tours, but yeah. I sat in the stand watching. There's no, there's no, uh, you didn't get the last 20 minutes the way they do these days in a test. No one ever came off unless they were seriously injured. Um, so I hadn't, I had, for two and a half years, I'd never got it on as in a test match. But then I did, and I started to, I'd started to play test matches before they went to South Africa. So I, I was certainly playing well, and I was playing well in domestic rugby. So there was no question, I don't think, that I was up to it. But nevertheless, I was young. I wasn't quite, you know, right in, 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 right in the middle of the fairway when it came to the type of person that was typically all black captain. Okay. Uh, and so, and because I hadn't gone and then to South Africa and the guys came back and they felt, 
a little bit kind of um, that I'd let them down by not going, oh, by right. keeping the whole team together because yeah, right. only two didn't go. And then I'd gain this benefit of it by being the captain. Yeah. Now, it was all, you know, you can see the sort of the Absolutely. fraught emotional yeah. space that we're moving into. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, so, and I think, you know, it was just people were very emotional because New Zealanders had really rejected that that team that went to South Africa. It was split, wasn't and they, it? Yeah, and they didn't expect that at all. They expected to have a lot of support. So that was emotionally pretty challenging for those players. And the way in which they, I think they responded to it was just to go in, to to stick together as the players that had gone away. And because they were most of the team after the test against France in 86 and then the and then the first test against Australia in that three-test series, mm. um, they came back, they all came back into the team, but they left me as a captain. You'd done a pretty good job in the in the baby bit. Yeah, you? yeah. The very first match, that baby blacks, they yeah. called them after yeah. after a while, where we played the French team, which was the Grand Slam winning team in Europe. Against so, all odds, right? Yeah. And then we and then we played, yeah, we played all these young players, sort of the third team, if you like, given the top two teams were in, in terms of 15 or 30 players went to South Africa. Um, yeah. And, uh, but a lot of young players. And it actually, and we won. Yeah. Yeah, which was pretty amazing, actually. But the um, and it was a great game and very sort of joyous afterwards. But I think what they did also later on they had, that had a later impact because it started to open the eyes of New Zealand rugby selectors to hey, there's a whole new young generation of players here that are actually really good, and so we've held on to the, an older generation of players for too long. And I think that was another challenge for the players that had gone to South Africa, even though they came back into the team. You're right. You know they they realised wow my Time is ticking right. on my time as an All Black, not only because I went to South Africa, but because, you know, I can see all these young players coming through and I might not, might not get the chance again. So you've got to galvanize, bring those guys on board, you've got to work with your coach, and you've got a country which is still going through a fair bit of thinking about supporting or not, obviously going to come on. What's the narrative? How do you galvanize, not just the team, but the country? Well, I didn't think about galvanizing the country. But it did. Yeah, I did. Yeah, or well, we did. The team, the team did. The next year, I did think about galvanising the team, and don't think I was successful in the last two, those last two tests against um, Australia. We won the first one, lost the second one. So where was your head at then when you lost that? I wasn't blaming anyone. I was, you know, I was like, um, I was very disappointed, pretty sad, and and down about the fact that we'd lost the series in New Zealand. We, you know, we were just outplayed, so we didn't. There's no excuses. It was. They used, um, the Wallabies played really well. So, mm. you know, so you're naturally down, but you know, life goes on. You have to get up and I suppose that I would have been focused on, I would have come back to focusing on what was the next steps for me, which yep. were, they've always been pretty good at, you know, when things go wrong, you got to come back and focus on what's next and don't try and focus on some you know, big thing out in the future, focus on the next step. So that would be getting back to Auckland where, cause we would have moved in after the test series, moved into the. National Provincial Championship period, and we had the Ramfilly Shield. So there was a lot of big games to play. And that was the only way I was going to demonstrate that I was still should be in the All Blacks and potentially captain by playing well myself. I was captaining Auckland, so there was plenty of opportunity to demonstrate that. So that was the next key for me. Just play well. Be good. Don't let the noise get in the way. Lead well and play well and demonstrate that, okay, we've had a hiccup. We've been beaten. We deserve to be beaten. We're now going to start to rebuild. All right. So how do you bring people on board then? Like you said, there's a bit of discontent there earlier. Yeah. Um, I guess the real um, 
See, I was dropped in as captain for the I know. end of the end. <laughs> I've been really polite. Yeah, you've been uh, <laughs> you've been breaking up to it, I'm sure. I was um, I was dropped as captain for the for the tour at the um, at the end of the year, which was back to France. How'd you take that? Well, the, the, funnily enough, um, was it a relief in no, some cases? Not a relief, or no. what is it? No one wants to be dropped as <laughs> captain so. in the All Blacks. The funny thing about it was, I can still remember exactly where I was and what I was doing when I when I um, found out because I found out listening to the radio. Terrible. Is that right? <laughs> That's true. Yeah. And weirdly enough, and this is a very weird thing to, to remember, but I was vacuuming in my flat and I never vacuumed in my flat or anything, but I don't know, I must have for some reason, some, some Saturday afternoon or something, whatever time it was, they announced it. That's gut-wrenching, push, isn't it? Pushing a vacuum around. Yeah. And I just heard it on the radio, and it was the radio just happened to be on in the background, and 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 they you know went through all the news, and they said, "Oh, sports news." At the end of the news on the hour, and it was, uh, "Oh, the big news is that um, David Kirk has been replaced as captain of the All Blacks for the team to tour uh, France," and then they sort of read out the team. So yeah, you know there was there were apologies, and oh, we tried to get hold of you, you didn't have a number, and all that sort of stuff. And it, to be fair, it was before the days of mobile phones and easy to get track people down. But um, there we are. Okay, so you're not only going to build yourself up. Where does your confidence go, David? Yeah, my confidence was knocked during that period. There's no doubt about it. And and it did affect my play. You did, did it? I think, yeah. And the confidence wasn't so much, um, I didn't lose confidence in my ability to play. Yep. But because I didn't feel like I was leading, was able to lead the team well in the last two tests against the Wallabies in that series and didn't have the support of my teammates, just didn't feel as if they supported me as captain. Right. Which is a pretty hard place to be. I just, you know, I just lost confidence. And, you know, when you lose confidence, when you when you don't just intuitively execute in sport at the highest level, you make mistakes. You fumble. You second-guess yourself. You just don't, you don't execute on the edge all the time, which, you, which is what you've got to do. Yep. And you've got to be not thinking about it. It just happens. But when there's stuff running around in your head, it's hard to clear it away. So I didn't play as well as I would otherwise have played. I had a bit of an injury as well. I mean, that, that came right by the end of the year, but it was, that was a frustration as well. So do you go and have a chat to the old man? Like, what do you do? Like, it's not, it's pretty lonely when this is starting yeah, to happen. No, I didn't talk to anyone. You don't? No, I didn't talk to anyone. And it lasted actually, I, I can remember when it, when it lifted, if you like, because it lasted right through until the Christmas holidays. Finally got clear air because, you know, there's all the rugby. We played the tests in the middle of the year, the June, July type of things. Lost a series to Australia, played all the provincial, kept the Ranfordish Shield, and then got on the tour to France at the end of the year, played the two tests there and the other other games. Finally, about November, you start to get clear air. And then you're working there and there was Christmas and I had two or three weeks off over Christmas and I was just like at the beach and everything. Yep. And I remember, I remember sort of, Sort of challenging myself and walking up, you know, walking along. Uh, family's all around and everyone's very supportive and, and it's good, you know, you're in a, in a good place. Thinking, you know, what am I going to do? You know, my, I just, it was such a miserable last six months of the year. Do I really want to bother? So I, shall I tell them all just to go and get, jump in the lake? Yeah. And um, not, not even be available for next year. So I just like, yeah, I've had enough of you. Seriously contemplate it? Yeah. And then I thought, well, okay, that's one option. And then, um, but what about? Is that a real option? Well, it was it was a real option in the sense that it floated into my mind. But uh, but, but you've, and, you've been given talents that others don't have. Yeah, 
Uh, you know, and it was there. I mean, it was, I was thinking about it. But then I, I don't know, I don't, and I don't know what it was. It was just, there were just some, there was just some point where I just said, no, stuff it. I'll show them. I know I'm good enough to play. I don't care if they make more to make me captain or not captain. At that stage, I wasn't captain. I'm going to play in the World Cup. I'm going to play really well and we're going to win it. And that's it. And then I'm gone because I knew I was, was gone. There was that in your mind then too. Yeah. And then I, really? and then I, yep. And then I knew I was gone. Because I was, I was leaving at the end of the the year. I had to leave at the end of the year to um, take up a road scholarship at Oxford. Yep. And I'd already put it off for two years. It was normal to put it off for, for, for one year if you're a medical student because you, it was a long, long training. But you have to take it up normally prior to being turning 25. Um, they might have relaxed that now, but in those days that was a, that was a rule. Yes, yep. And so I put it off once and then I put it off another time. I had to get special dispensation to put it off for the second year to play in the World Cup. I was just open with them. That's what I wanted to do. One more year of rugby and play in the World Cup. And so, as I said, turned 26. But but they gave me the dispensation. So I knew in October of that year, of the World Cup year of 1987, I was finished with rugby in New Zealand, probably for good. And I was going off to study in, in Oxford. So I had that target. I had that, I made that decision in probably January of 1987 that I was going to give it my be- absolute best shot as a player and and... Be, be part of the team that won the World Cup, and uh, why did they give? Why did they give you the captaincy then? Um, well, initially they didn't. I know. Yeah, that was interesting, isn't it? Yeah. That's fate sometimes, right? Yeah. Well, yep, fate, like whatever you might like to call. Yeah, it. Yeah, be put yourself in a position to get it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I do think no disrespect to the person they did select as the captain, but it was a kind of a unity ticket. They felt somehow. There'd be everything had been so disrupted in the previous year, yep. and there were still quite a lot of players from who had gone to South Africa and who were in the team for the last two tests against France and in the team that went to France that year. Although actually there was a pretty big clean out, but there's still a number of those players, and they just felt like having the captain of the team that had taken them to South Africa somehow would be more unifying. Which I think personally think was the wrong decision. Obviously, I'm. I'm, I've got interest. <laughs> I've got an interest in saying that, but um, I think it was the wrong decision for a few reasons. One is that, again, with no disrespect to the player Andy Dalton, mm. he was really at the very end of his career. Yeah, and the person who was well nipping he got on replaced. His, yeah, and the person who was nipping on his heels was Sean Fitzpatrick. Yeah, exactly. Who, and he was playing extremely well, and he played and he extremely held, well held, the, pre- his... the, the previous year. And he was yeah. a great captain and a, and one of the greatest hookers rugby's ever seen. So, you know, really, the the, the time for transition had passed. So that was the first thing. Uh, and secondly, the team that was selected to play, there was 26 in the squad and there were 13 that came from Auckland. And 10 Aucklanders played in the World Cup final. And I was the captain of Auckland. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't like, you know, there was somehow some concern with that I would not be able to lead this team. Because in a way, it was a team I was leading every, every Saturday when we played together. So I just think that there was some dismissaligned thinking there. But unfortunately for Andy, but um, fortunately, I guess, in a way for the team, because Sean came in and Sean played extremely well during the World Cup. Andy was injured at the first training session and he didn't get to play a game. It was quite ironic, wasn't it? Because I remember the moment very well. He was sitting on the bench, wasn't he? The last one, wasn't he? Yeah, Andy was. He did. He he was semi and final. He was able to sit on the bench. It's amazing, isn't it? Captain of the team sitting on the bench. Yeah. But that was the right thing to do. I mean, I think the selectors and coaches got their head around that, wow, we've got a special team here. We're not going to mess it around. And Sean was playing really well, so there was no there was no coming back for Andy. 
So what stands you out as a skipper then? What makes me different? Yeah. Or, no, I think a lot of things are not about what makes you different, actually. It's about what you do well that is consistent and required that every captain or every leader needs to do well. So you can run through a whole bunch of um, all black captains, say, and say, these people all did more or less the same thing. They maintained, because you don't have to engender it because it's already there, but they maintained the, the focus on winning and the need to win and the need to, to play as well as we can, the need to prepare well and the need to execute well in, in games. And that's where it comes from. So, you know, there's the, there's the fear of losing and there's the, you know, desire to win and there's a bit of both. Yeah. And, and captains and, you know, need to inculcate that clearly and they need to be players, particularly new players, need to be, need to be very clear that, you know, you haven't just come here to make up the numbers. You've been selected for the All Blacks because you're good enough to play. You need now need to be a leader in your position. You need to play as well as anyone else has played in your position. And you need to set new standards for whatever number's on your back. So there's that type of pressure and the captain needs to be the you know, the point of focus in terms of communicating those those values and those expectations. Is the role of captain different today than it was during the amateur days? Yeah. I, well, I think it's not so much the amateur days. It, it's just like it's different in the 2010s and the 2020s than it was in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, where this society's moved on. Things are different. People people have are brought up differently. People have different experiences in education. They have different social experiences these days. Um, so those things have all changed, and, and leadership needs to adapt to that environment. But fundamental values and the fundamental culture of the All Blacks hasn't changed probably for 130 years. So on the fundamentals... Why are they so successful? Well, as if you know. other great teams you've come up against. Why? It is pretty amazing. I mean, it is. in 130 years, I think the winning, the non losing, right, including the draws, is just under 80%, 78, 79%. But if you take shorter time periods, um, I was just looking at um, sort of something yesterday just happened to come through, but coaches like Graham Henry and, and Steve Hansen and yep. during their era, and both of them, I think, I think Graham might have been in the. 80s or 90s number of tests he was a cat and I'm pretty sure Steve was over 100 they had winning winning percentages of over 80% you know 80% or 84% it's phenomenal for a team to do that over an extended period of time in a highly competitive sport yeah and I often mean, won in the last few minutes as well yeah many times not always you know obviously lots of teams beat, well beaten before that but <laughs> um sure yeah, but it's the right. ones that it's 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 the ones that you win when perhaps you're not playing your best you find a way to win, and it's the ones you win because the opposition's played really well. You're behind, but you play the last 10 minutes better or the last five minutes better. So those are the ones you remember the most. Yeah, it is an extraordinary record, and you ask why. It's a whole combination of things. We could probably do a whole podcast on that. I've read a number of, read a number of books on it and the attitude, yeah. etc. But the, is there The culture particular? is really important, the culture of the team, the winning winning culture. Does it change much at all? Is it just, is that just the DNA which just runs through? Kind of, there are blips. Like there was a blip when the Cavaliers and the 86 team and there have been other blips. But generally it doesn't change much at all. Um, sometimes the blips are, um, are often not really about cultural change. They're about capability change, ability change. We just actually, for some period, for a couple of years, we don't have as many world-class players as, as we like to. And one or two other countries do. Or we just, for whatever reason, uh, could be leadership, could be just, you know, some core of the team 
just don't execute under pressure as well as as they should. And this is kind of one of the reasons why the All Blacks have been so successful is we're really good at learning. If we, if we lose, it's a bit about that divine discontent, always wanting to be better, but at the same time recognizing if you've made a mistake, if we've lost a couple of tests or we've just, we're not, we're not good enough, we figure it out. We work out what it takes to win and why we haven't won. And we go back to drawing board and then we make sure that we, um, we develop those capabilities. How much is up here, David? Well, um, for the listeners, you tapped your head. Yes. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Because I could get a bit philosophical and say it's all up there. Um, because if you don't, if you can't get your head to in the right space, get your mind, get your focus, have the right beliefs, then you're not going to, your body is not going to be able to go where it needs to go. That said, you've always got to, you know, physique and speed and skill. You've got to have the capacity. Your mind needs to lead, but you need the physical capacity to execute on what your mind's telling you you need to do. So confidence and ability to operate well under pressure, ability to focus on small things, that's the mind. The mind is very important for sport. And it's not just individual minds, it's the collective mind. So that the team is thinking the same way, the team is executing. When you're playing great teams over an extended period of time, you do have a, it's definitely an intuition about mm -hmm. who's, I mean, you've just seen players do so many different things in different circumstances. And you just have a, you just have a, you just know, uh, and you, and you put yourself in a position, which is going to mean that they can, you can interact and the team can do all of that kind of that, um, stuff that seems like intuitive and off the cuff actually comes from lots and lots of playing together and executing and just having a feel for how other players run the lines they run, the speed they run, um, the way in which they position themselves. That 87 team was a phenomenal team. But if I was a player in that team, I haven't had the chance to speak to any, but if I was a player in that team, and I'm an outstanding player, as you say, I've got all that discipline, the focus, the skill, the speed, the mental aptitude, and the hardiness about it, what am I looking for from a skipper? Reinforcement of that you're good. <laughs> that that, that yeah. sense of confidence that you that the skipper, because you know, skipper's the guy that might be involved with selection, that sort of stuff, but... You want to know that the skipper thinks you're the right person, that you're good, that this is the right team. So just continuing to build confidence to, to make people feel like they are the best in the world and let's go and do it together. So I think that's This is important. Like, like the Mike Brealies of the world as well? Yeah, that's, that's the sort of thing. You know, great captains are necessary to get the best out of great players. So I think that's really important. Um, I think we talked briefly about focus, but you know mm. you always got to talk to people individually about focus, about their job, about what they've got to do, which yeah, they right. know, but you just reinforce it for them. And then, for me at least, it was about continually trying to set new, you know, a vision of, of the next step of what we could be achieving as a team. So how do you paint that? Well- That is, we, you know, we, we do umpteen- Plays and we, we don't drop yeah. the ball or what, you well, know, what, what, of, what, what do you that, that, But it's more, no, it, it becomes a bit more um, esoteric than that because for me it was about just playing the game as beautifully as it could be played, as well as it could be played. And you relate that to the short period of time that players have got to do that. You know, most players in international rugby, it's, it's got much longer now because of professional careers. Yeah. But in those days, um, people probably had four or five years was their usual 
tenure, you know, and for me, I would talk to people about, you know, it's remarkable that so many great players are in the same place at the same time playing for the same team. We have this yes, incredible opportunity to be the best team, to play the best rugby that's ever been played. And that's what we need to set out to do. And we only do that by focusing on the basics and, and the core of what we do and just being ourselves. And that brought, I think that, that we talked before about divine discontent and being a bit miserable by never achieving it potentially, but um, it also brought a joyousness. And one of the things you see in great teams, really good teams, teams that are better than anyone else and they yep. know they're better than anyone else, but they're not slacking off because just they know they can win. That that fighting the game now they're trying to play the game better than it's ever been played they're trying to push back the boundaries of and be remembered as part of the greatest team ever and so we definitely had that in, in us and i would and i would talk about that about you guys look around you look at the people here look at the talent do you ever think you're going to be in a room with these people again yeah. and us on the same journey with the, with the same goals to play together to play the game of rugby as well as can ever be played this is our opportunity we can't let it go and so that that was you know very inspiring for people I think and uh, and you can only do that when you've genuinely got the best some of the best players in the world most of the best players in the world yeah and you've got the canvas you've got the opportunity you've got a World Cup or or you've got a, a period of playing together so um, I think people enjoyed that there was another part which was building the nation or bringing the nation yeah okay um, you said you didn't necessarily see it early on but you must have started starting to see it. People coming back yeah. to follow the All Blacks, I didn't you know, think the about press that. coverage. But I didn't think about that, and the team didn't. It, it didn't? I didn't. We, there, was some, there was some PR marketing type of stuff done. I mean, we did a, some ads on Stand By Me and that sort of stuff. So that was oh, yeah. designed, using that song. And, and Great song. Yeah, that was the early days, <laughs> early days of marketing sports teams. But that was about it, really. But So I wasn't thinking about that. I was thinking about just playing well. If the team played well and we won, I knew New Zealanders would, would respond to that. What was unexpected was more of a, there was a natural um, joyousness in the way we played, but also there was a natural openness and easygoing young boyishness about me, about the way I spoke yep. and the way I involved. Well, I a young face as well as yeah, a Yeah, and I didn't really, yeah, and I was relatively young, but yep. I didn't, and I, you know, I spoke, you know, well, fluently. Yep. Yep. And actually gave but your I, opinion too. Yeah, yeah. Clear. I was I answered very honestly. Yeah, so, well, that's, that's different very, in some cases. Yeah, right? very it's clear, refreshing. clearly. Yeah, and I, it frustrates me even now today when I see captains out. Yeah, oh, it was a good game. Gave it two halves, and I yeah. thought we played well. And all credit to them. And all of that stuff is a, is a bit dull. Tell us something interesting, because honestly, you do know a lot about when you when you come off a game after playing a game. You got a lot in your mind. You're thinking about. I'm, oh, I was always thinking. God, you know, we should have done this. We could have done that. Um, you know, there was there was a lot of stuff I was. I was already, before I got off the field, thinking about, well, what do we need to improve? What do we need to do better with here? So when the guy put a microphone in front of me and said, oh, well, you know, what do you think of the game today? You know, you won well. Yeah, we won well, but I wasn't very happy. Well, I don't think we should be happy with this. I think we've got more work to do there. Uh, I think they were, they actually were better with us. You know, there was all of that sort of analytical kind of stuff that came out, which people thought, oh, that's interesting. They're actually telling us what players are thinking and how they go about preparing for the next match after this one. Did well in the World Cup. Great team. Were you surprised by the, the difference in the score lines between the, you know, you're, you're playing the best, best countries obviously yeah. in the world, but you were winning by a mile. I was actually, yeah. Um, I mean, that's, you know, bearing in mind with the, the Upton, as you say, 12 months earlier, 18 months earlier. Yeah. You've been beaten. Countries yeah. coming back yeah. together. Teams coming back together. Yeah. Skipper, new skipper. 
yeah. in a sense, being reinstalled. Yeah. And then the results were just quite, um, yeah. anybody, did not anybody predict that? A lot of Aucklanders, no, no one predicted it. A lot of Aucklanders, so there was a lot of coherence in the team from that, for, for 10 in the World Cup winning team, the final playing team. Quite a few from Canterbury as well, and two or three from Wellington. So it was actually quite concentrated on a few provinces, the leading provinces in New Zealand. Um, so that helped, but that was a, that was a bit of a an after-the-fact observation. I think, you know, you're right. I mean, it's four-point tries in those days. Mm. And, you know, Italy, who was still emerging, to be fair, but yep. we, when we scored over 70 points against them. We scored over more than more than that against Fiji in the next game. And Fiji were quite good. They played a really good quarterfinal. Yeah. Uh, they were not, they were no mugs. And then was Argentina by over you know, mid-40s. Yeah. We scored. And then the quarterfinal, it was 30 to 3. And the semifinal, it was 49 to 9 or something. And then the final, it was 29-9. Yeah, we, we just exactly. ran over everyone, basically. But it was just a great team. It was just one of those freak teams. Did you reach it? Did you get no. to your beautiful game? No, you never, you never <laughs> quite get there. We played some, we played some beautiful Which moments. Which was the best one you reckon you some played? Some beautiful then? moments. Oh, the World Cup final was by far the hardest game. France was good. That was a grind. That was, that was a battle. I remember the thing I had to say mostly to the team at halftime. Those days, coaches... No one was allowed on at half time. He stayed on the field, whatever the weather, five minutes, gathered around in a little huddle. The guy came on with water and a bit of sticky tape or something like that if someone needed it. Um, and But he didn't even bring on instructions from the coach. Oh, really? None of that. No. It was all with the play. The team, the team led itself. So what did you say? Well, my, my comments mainly at halftime, because I knew everyone knew what, we, what was expected of us. It would just work. We just got to work. It just, we got to, Focus on the details, focus on our execution, focus on set pieces and the breakdown and just work, 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 hard, hard, hard. We just got to do everything, you know, right. It was just, it was a, gr this is a grind. This is not joyous football. We are grinding out this game. We're going to win it because it was about, we turned around to play into the wind in the second half and we were ahead about 12-3, I think. Yeah, but the French are unconventional, right? They are, they were, they were, no, they had a big forward pack. There's nothing unconventional about smashing people. No, but uh, talent, the but talent, they can spin the ball anyway. They had a lot they? of great talent in the backs. So that was yeah. a, that was another great era of, of I could sort of run through their back line. Yeah. There's the Serge Blancos That's and, right. the, and the Philippe Sillars and the so Den Denis Chavez maybe, right? and Frank Monell yeah. and Pierre Bibizier. That, that's a great back line. Yeah, we just had to win the Ford battle and we had to keep them in the right end of the field. And we ended up kicking penalties for a while and then, boom, you know, the dam broke and we scored two tries in two minutes. Uh, and from there... We were home. What's the feeling? Is it is it relief? It's a bit of relief, yeah. A lot of relief. But also joy. Because, you know, the joy actually in a way, in the first instance, came from the people around you. Yeah. The final whistle goes, you think, oh, we've won the World Cup. It's amazing. You know, there's a relief. But then you look around, you see all of this joy in the stadium. And in those days, people were able to invade the pitch. So everyone came on the field. And so we're walking off. No one was sort of running off at that stage. We're walking off because we had to go. They told us beforehand. Both teams need to go through and up a tunnel and and then come out of the top and um and be you know awarded and given your in front of the home crowd too yeah but everyone was on the field and patting on the back and and um yeah and it was mainly kids I remember the kids really lots of children jumping the fence and running running over as you walked up to get the trophy no reflection going through your mind geez do I do I go back and see if I could defend it as skipper. No. None at all? I wasn't really thinking about the end. A little bit. I was thinking about the I was thinking a bit about the end. 
this was the end. This was probably my last major international. But I wasn't melancholic about it at that stage. I was just, I was a bit of that. But mostly I was focused on getting up there, sort of wondering what's it going to be like? What happens when I pop out in the stand and they're going to present the first ever Rugby World Cup and someone's going to give me the first ever Rugby World Cup medal? That was um, kind of, I was being carried along by that. You're listening to No Limitations with special guest David Kirk, MBE. On our next episode, I sit down with Jack Barsky, retired KGB agent and author of Deep Undercover. So they knew how I went to work. So one day, one of the agents, it was um, another dark morning. There weren't too many people on the platform. He just uh, came from my right side and came really close and whispered into my ears, you got to come home or else you're dead. Be sure to join us on our next episode. And now, back to the show. We talked leadership in the team. But there's leadership outside facing the public, outside of the dressing sheds. Mm-hmm. What's it like? And how you do mean you for sit? a rugby player or more generally? Just in general. And how do, you, do you, you, know, um, you think about how you conduct yourself? The first thing is always just to be true to yourself, to be authentic, and hopefully that authenticity. How many people, how many people do that? Well, people in struggle with it in positions of, or politics in particular, because they have this expectation that people want to hear a certain thing from yeah. them. But I think that's, that's less true than, than politicians often think. People are not silly. I mean, don't, it's really silly to underestimate people. People, you know, electorates, people generally, they, they get it. They see. They know when people are being authentic. They know when people genuinely care about them and care about doing the right thing by them. So I think, for me anyway, it's been important to be genuinely authentic. And, you know, and that can sometimes delivering, mean delivering bad news or delivering news which is not in your interest or not in the interest of your political party or your company or, or the shareholders of your company. But it's true and it needs to be said and it needs to be done and we need to move on. So for me, that's clearly the, the best course of action. Philosophical sport. Mm. What's it for? What's the, what's, the, what's the point of sport? Yeah. Uh, I mean, entertainment is one thing. We all need to be entertained. We all need, we all need to, to feel good about, about watching things. The great thing about sport is that as a player, as in playing it, but also in watching it, you generally are entertained or engaged in company. So you go along with other people. So you have, you know, you're, you're a fan and you have groups and you go along with your mates or you go along with your, with your family or whatever it is, or even you watch it on, you know, TV or online with other people. It's, it's community building. If you think about all the people who, who connect with a particular sports team. Yep. And I think in this day, and it's particularly particular day of social media and of globalization, we need to do everything we can to help drive social cohesion for people to feel that they belong yep. somewhere. Yep. Uh, and if you belong to it, and sport's great at helping people remember they belong to a community. And, and why is that important? It's partly important because if people have got a stake in their community, they'll act on behalf of it. They'll serve in, you know, not-for-profit volunteer, they'll care about their community. But it's also important for those individuals themselves because feeling like you belong and feeling like people value you because you belong, it's good yeah. for mental health. It makes people feel, they, make, they feel like, you know, I'm part of something here and you get positive feedback. You know, your team wins, people around you are cheering, you're in a good environment. Um, I think all of that is really important and particularly in this world of um, atomization through social media and globalization. 
And, you know, you take that to the next level from club or province or state to, to national level. I think that's important too. We've got this terrible fear of, um, you know, the drive for national dominance that came out of the 20th century, particularly um, second, First and Second World Wars. But that doesn't mean you still can't have a, a strong, healthy nation, national culture. No, that, that's exactly right. And so we've just, it's where I was heading. We need to be careful not to, you know, reject that and say that, you know, we're all global citizens and we just need to be global. Yeah. We're not. We get our feeling of belonging and our feeling of uh, who we are and our feeling of being able to contribute. I mean, if you're a global citizen, how do you genuinely contribute? But if you're in a community or you're in a town or a city or you're in a country, you can feel like I'm doing something for my country. I'm, I care about this and I'm doing something. And that makes us feel good about ourselves. And it, and it, it, we, when we do that in company, when we do that with other people, you know, we build movements and we build we build things that make a difference. For a lot of us, that's what we're here for, to live a good life, and but to make a difference, to have an impact. And it doesn't have to be some impact that's remembered for hundreds of years, but it's made a difference in other people's lives while we're alive. And hopefully some of that will will continue. And, and you know, you think about that as a father as well, as a parent, and with your own children, you yep. the, the way you make a difference is to pass on values and to be supportive and helpful of, of your own children. Yeah, the question, the reason I was asking, is, do you think we put too much emphasis on the, the word entertainment as opposed to sportsmanship, taking the bad decision, accepting the bad and having the character to overcome it, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I don't think you have to trade them off. Yeah, okay. I think um, the trade-off, actually, funnily enough, is often between the game as played, the game as a challenge to the players, as a as a difficult thing to master, and entertainment, because sometimes they try to make the game simpler, and sometimes they try to get the game more more open and running, and yeah. so on. So um, yeah, to make it. Yeah, so I think that's a bit of a challenge we we have to wrestle with. We have to clearly make it attractive to broad range of people, the the rusted on, but also the people that will watch the game if it's entertaining and enjoyable, and and they can understand it and and see it played. And then even another loop of people who don't know much about it at all, but but just think. Oh, it's quite cool. I, I like going along or it's a good environment, good vibe when I go to a game or it's good entertainment to watch on TV. So we need to, we need to do all of that. But at the same time, you know, games have historical context and the, the game itself yeah. has historical context and it has, um, meaning for the players in being able to achieve certain skills and capabilities and overcome certain challenges in, in the game, the way the game is played. Mm. And if you lose that, if you make the game sort of easy, simple, and too straightforward, then you lose a lot of historical context, but you also just, it doesn't become that, we've talked a lot about, you know, people trying, the game trying to be played the best it can ever be played, and people trying to be the best player they can ever be by developing their skills, you know, playing against the game, as it were. Yeah, but it's also providing a platform, you can only do that if you're allowing creativity too, aren't you? Yeah. And innovation in that sense, right? Yeah. As opposed to structure, structure, structure. Yep, totally, totally agree with that. I mean, the structure and everything needs structure. That's where the sort of yeah, discipline yeah, we talked about before yeah, yeah, yeah. talked about. Um, but on top, it's the great teams layer creativity in new ways of do we, doing things. Do we on top a, of that structure? Okay, so do we encourage enough in? I know you like art, etc. So the creativity behind that. But in general thinking, what you read in the press or the narrative out there, do you think there's enough emphasis on creativity and solving? Solving problems, you see, you know, you look at leadership's commentary yeah. in the market, you see 
ASX 100, Jibby Zaxxon Chairman, do you hear a lot of creativity? The reality is, unless you've got some huge market position advantage or something else, um, like a monopoly, you're not going to be a long-term successful business unless you're creative, unless you innovate, unless you put on offer to your customers, people who are prepared to give you money, something new and different and and something excellent, something that they... Yeah, but it's got to be a culture, doesn't it? Culture and organisation We're just, just going to blast yeah. something out because it's creative for that five minutes, right? Yeah. So how do you encourage that and get people to do that? First thing you have to explain that explain what we're talking about now, that, that we're not going to be talking talking to your organisation. We're not going to be successful long-term unless we innovate, unless we change, unless we adapt to what's going on around us. First point. Second point, we're not going to be successful unless we're really, really good at what we do. That's the basics. Because it's very competitive out there, yeah. yeah. Okay. And being really good is also being good at innovation, being good at being good at taking the next step about at doing something different. And that can be that can be in all sorts of contexts. You know, you can lots of innovation, lots of change, different time horizons for in airlines or in, you know, heavy manufacturing. There's a whole range of different things that, that can be done. Those you think, oh, those are businesses where you commit the capital and then you just have to, you know, turn the handle for a number of years trying to get good returns on that capital. Not true. There's lots and anything facing the consumer, for instance, is very much got to live in the space of innovation and newness and um, creativity. You invest and place big bets in organisations, and I assume in their leadership. Yeah. What are you looking for? Well, we are looking for really good founders. I mean, you're talking about the, the technology fund I started with with partner Paul Wilson about nearly eight nine years ago now, which yeah. now listed on the ASX and. We've had some great successes. Yeah. Firstly, you're looking for great founders, people that, it's like great people make great sportsmen, great people make great managers in companies. It is about people and values and and what they're doing it for, why they're trying to build this business. Um, so there's that. Then there's the idea itself, and is it new and different, and is it does it solve a real problem for people, or does it open up a new opportunity for people? Nice-to-haves don't cut it. It's got to be a have-to-have for businesses, if you're, if you're looking at B2B, and in the business to consumer, if you're selling something to consumers, then it's got to be something that's like knockout. It's got to be a lot better than what they're giving out. So like online classified ads, for instance, were a lot better than newsprint, yeah, uh, newspaper okay. ads. You know, it's, it's search, fundamental functionality, or what people benefit people are getting is they're able to search in online, whereas in, in the newspaper, it's scanning. It's, it's trying to find. So that directed search versus scanning mm-hmm. was the fundamental difference. So that, that's the sort of fundamental change you need. Fundamentally better for consumers to be able to expect to be successful when you're starting a new business. So we look for that. We look for that. We look for, we, because we invest at the growth stage, we look for what's called product market fit. Yep. In other words, have we we've built this product, we're now getting a lot of traction with customers because our money is really to accelerate growth. We now we know what we, what our product is. We keep developing it, of course, but we know what it is. We know there's a great demand for it in the market, but we need money. We need to go to offshore, and we need to really get running. So there's that. You know, the quality of people across the board is important, not just the founders. The the plan is important. We work we work with our teams on that to help them develop their plan, and we just stick alongside them. We're there for we're there for good. I suppose the one thing I've left out is the economics, the fundamental economics of their growth. In other words, do they acquire customers cost-effectively and, and do those customers stay with them for a long period of time and therefore become profitable customers? Right. Uh, we've always focused on that, but it's come, become much more fashionable in the last couple of years. 
to make sure your businesses actually can be long-term profitable. Interesting now too, right? Yeah. All of ours are in that position. Because cost um, of capital is going up. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what happens. That's when it becomes scarcer. All right. I'll come to that in a second. Right. Last question around the World Cup. If I dropped you back into that team tomorrow, all these years later, would you make any other different decisions? Uh, I would have to, definitely, yeah. I would have to behave differently and would you? think differently. Well, not not fundamentally, not in terms of who I am as a person, my authenticity and and my love of the All Blacks and my understanding of its heritage and the desire to maintain that heritage or the, the need to maintain. It's not a desire. It's a requirement to maintain that heritage. But I would have to learn about the game and the way the game is played and the way they prepare today. I would have to, I mean, I've got reasonable understanding, but I would have to continue my understanding of the culture of the people, the, the, where they've come from. A lot more players coming, you know, Pacific Island players and yep. Māori players. Yep. So they come out of different personal environments, that where they've come from, their family environment and their cultural and social environment. Yes. I would have to learn more about that because that, that definitely influences the way people live their lives and part of living their life is playing playing rugby. And I'd have to understand that. So there would be quite a bit of adaptation. The core leadership, um, setting goals, articulating a vision, requiring you know, discipline and hard work. Still the same? All the same. Yeah. Yeah. Requiring innovation through the divine discontent type route. The one thing we didn't talk about about that I've always thought is really important, particularly in sports teams, but in businesses as well, is dealing with politics. Yeah, well, I was going to say, you're going to come to that. And yeah. business is full of it, right? Yeah. But then again, so is top sport. Yeah, not yeah, with, it is. But we're not talking here, I'm not talking here about, you know, the politics of, you know, getting yourself elected to be the um, on the board of something or of a sports team. Or I mean, not joking becoming, around. No, or becoming the, you know, the prime minister or, or political party. It's not that type of, you know, building yeah. coalitions and, and trying to get elected. It's the interpersonal politics which goes with high-performing people. If people have seen that, Documentary on Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan. Yeah, yeah, good one. Yeah, yeah. Did, did, yeah. yeah, that was great. It was very mm. honest about, yeah. and that, that happens in all top sports teams. But you almost got the impression that some of them didn't even really know each other. Well, so that they didn't really like each other. Um, they they and I, and, I, and I could say the same thing. I don't want to say I didn't like some of my friends, but I didn't have much in common with them. I wasn't ever expecting to spend time with them after I'd finished playing rugby. Uh, they just we just we just wasn't our lives were not going to run along. I mean, obviously if you saw them at a reunion and everything, it would be great because you'd all be living in the past anyway, talking about what you were, what you were doing. But, um, so it was a common purpose at that time. Yeah, a common purpose at that time. And I, I have a great deal of respect for them as players and what they could execute, but respect is different from like or, you know, genuine long-term friendship. So what's the politics then? Politics is about, you've got a whole lot of highly ego-driven, egotistical people who've, who are on their own mission to be the best rugby player or sports person that they can be. Fragile too. In a team, in a team who have setbacks, exactly right, who have setbacks, who lose confidence, who feel like other people aren't pulling their weight or other people aren't doing what they need to do or they should be in playing in a different position or selections aren't quite right. There's all of these things that can run through and across and around a team. They have to be surfaced. You have to see, you have to find out. See and recognize when players are snapping at each other, not happy, fighting over who's in what seat in the bus. That was in the old days, but that doesn't happen these days. Genuinely fighting. You weren't driving the bus? I was not. I was up the front just getting out of it. <laughs> but that's got to be dealt with. Okay. That's the key. So I'm talking about the small, small P politics of just interpersonal politics of what goes on when people are in the highly 
stressful circumstances, trying to, in company, together, achieve something. And, you know, stuff happens. And, and the way to do that is, so it may not be to, like, have an all-teams meeting and surface it all and say, don't want to name any names, but I've seen too much of this sort of thing. Maybe that's right in some circumstances. But today, in particular, it's more about dealing with people one-on-one, asking them to be open with you and having them trust you about what's, what's wrong. I can see that this is bugging you, this is a problem. And you can't always solve the problem, but you can just help them live with it or deal with it or or manage it. So that's partly the captain, but it's partly also other members of the traveling squad, the non-peak members often. might be the physio, it might be someone else, it might be the mental skills person these days. It's not a big deal, you know, It's about, but it's about giving people the opportunity to talk about what's bothering them and to do what you can to... To, to deal with the problem. If it's just someone like, you know, pisses me off when someone says this and they seem to say it all the time and I just think it's repetitive and and it's sort of slightly demeaning me or whatever, then that person can go away and say to them, there are members of the team who, who are not happy with when you come out and say that. Yep. So, you know, you can deal with those things. So it's all just, but that again is about openness and honesty and trying to, everyone being on the same page of what we're here to achieve and it's not a personal thing and, and the Our last analysis, it's about the team. And if you have to make sacrifices, you have to make them. Anyone teach you to be a leader? Like, how do you learn? Uh, I think your parents teach you the fun, definitely teach you the, the fundamental values, expectations. So parents are really important. Uh, I would say that's the first step. Uh, it's how your parents react to setbacks and things like that. They support you, but they don't bullshit for you you know they don't, they don't yeah. like say oh no if only this you know you would have done better they leave you to, to get your own head around the reality of the situation well certainly that's what my parents were they were never very pushy they, they loved the fact that I was successful in sport but they never you know were really um, they didn't make it the big deal for them that I was successful they weren't the parents it was like they were gaining their own kind of personal kudos out of me being successful yeah, okay. it wasn't that the only thing I really remember about my parents has been influential to me. It was when I was about like 10 years old playing rugby, Palmerston North, regional New Zealand city, just playing on a Saturday morning, probably had, you know, bare feet with muddy and wet and everything. I'd stayed at a friend's place overnight and we'd stayed up late and I was like really tired and I was playing badly. I was just, I wasn't engaged. And I remember my mother, I was at half time, parents went like loud on, it was just the coach and in chewing my little orange. And I saw my mother, mother out of the side corner of my eye. She was right down on one corner, set off running across the field towards us. I thought, oh, what's happening here? And I knew I was playing. I, was, I just was just like dawdling around the field. And she came on and she sort of took me aside and she said, your team needs you to play well. Get off your backside and give them a decent, you know, 20 minutes or whatever it was in those days of, of rugby. Um, and then she just wandered off again. Which, so for me, it was about, you know, that, that was a great lesson and don't, don't let your team down. You know, I was still, even then I was, you know, one of the faster runners or something. So one of the more influential players and so, you know, and they needed me to, to be helpful. But so that, that, you know, that stuck with me. It's like, you know, you've got an obligation if you've got talent and obligation to prepare well and an obligation to do your best you can when you're playing. And of course that, you know, that'll lead on to personal success, but you do it through the, the enterprise of the team. Right. So why didn't you stick at becoming a doctor? I like medicine. And I, my dad was a doctor, my grandfather was a doctor, my uncle was a doctor. Is that why you did it? Probably, yeah. A lot of bright kids did it at the end of well, school. Well, lawyer or doctor or something. Yeah, I mean, it was exactly. Courage, it was right? a natural default type 
position. Yep. But I didn't just do it because of that. Uh, for me, it combined the intellectual challenge yep. of diagnosis and treating people and hopefully succeeding yep. with uh, the people side of it. So I always felt myself as kind of, you know, wanting to combine intellectual challenges with engagement with people, doing mm -hmm. it through people and with people in teams and so on. So I thought medicine would give me a good opportunity to do that. And it did. And I really enjoyed my training and I enjoyed my junior doctor work in the hospitals, you know, rotating around all the different, you know, specialties and working in A&E and working in psychiatry and working in orthopedic surgeon or surgery and all those sorts of things. Uh, I learned a lot from that. And I had intended to go on with medicine, but then when I went to Oxford, I had this sort of two and a half year. No, you didn't have accepted. You didn't have to accept. You, you, no, you, no, no, no. It's certainly an honor, correct? I could, yeah. I, I didn't have to accept it. That's true. But I also didn't have to, um, I could normally, if you're a med doctor and you accept a Rhodes Scholarship, you'll go there and do a research degree. You so you're on PPE. Yeah. You'll come back and you'll, you'll get a, you'll get a, you'll get a doctor or a master's in, in science. Because I've been doing really sciences since I was 15, 14. So, you know, physics, chemistry, maths, biology, English, French, history. That was sort of everything I did all the way through. And when I got to university, it was all sciences from then on because it was all... Um, Time for a change. It was all, yeah, it was all... Yeah, so I thought, well, this is a great opportunity. I'm going to Oxford, one of the great universities of the world, renowned for its humanities and yep. so on. I'm gonna, oh, it's the classic, right? Yeah, I'm going to do a degree, which which lets me take advantage of that. Plus, I was very attracted to the undergraduate teaching system, which is a series of essays and discussions with tutors about those essays, one-on-one, -on -one, yeah. often. Occasional sherry. Pretty, if you've got a late... But pretty incredible, isn't it? Pretty amazing, yeah. Pretty amazing that they can continue to have that because it's very expensive, obviously, to have that type of... But it's a, but it's a, it's a unique teaching environment where a teacher... So how many, during that time, David, how many were on road scholarships at that time? Uh, from the world. Yeah. Usually it's three years yeah. tenure, and I think it's about 120, 130 at that time. Yeah, okay. Were were um, so nominated Clinton, every year. Prime Minister, you know, yeah, Bill on. Clinton was one some years early. He didn't graduate off Bill. Went back to politics pretty quickly. Um, yeah, there's been lots of you know, Bob, Bob Hawke, of course. Yep. Yeah, Tony Abbott. Yep, Tony um, Abbott. And, uh, Malcolm Turnbull. Yep. Lots of New Australian politicians. Yeah. Been How many out of New Zealand? I'm trying to think about I mean, lots and lots of New Zealanders. Of course, two or three now. It was two in my day, but now at least three go every year. Very successful in lots of different fields. Not so many in politics, I don't think. I don't think many have gone into politics. But PPE, right? Yeah, philosophy, politics, and economics. It's a classic Oxford degree. It, no, Pretty it, much all the politicians in the UK do it. Absolutely. Yeah. And prime ministers as well out of the UK. Yeah. Okay. We don't do a lot of it in, in this country. We do a Bachelor of Commerce. Yeah. We do science. We do laws. What are the granting did that give you? Yeah, I mean... Well, it gives you great grounding because it gives you a grounding in, in the, the best way to describe it, it gives you a grounding in the historical development of thinking in philosophy, for instance. You know, you go start with Plato and Aristotle and think about political philosophy. How do they start to think about the way to organize society and how do we best set ourselves up for the benefit of, in those days, not for the benefit of all society, but that led on to the benefit of all societies as things became more democratic. Yeah. So that that's it's it's easy to see in the philosophy side of it because it was mostly political philosophy, but also economics. Economics is is really an evolution of learnings about economic organisation. How do we organise to get to make the best use of capital and labour and and generate the most good ideas that can be used to innovate? And then you bring that together with politics, which is which is the practice and the political organisation associated with 
getting the best out of political philosophy, you know, freedoms and equality and and so on, with economical organisation, which allows people, yeah. So how do we set up institutions and how do we make laws which, you know, build the society that we've decided sort of in theory through philosophy with freedom and equality and so on, and in in material sense in using economics, how do we do that? You know, how do we actually set up the right political structures? And you can see the world now is, is diverging in this regard. And there are places like China and, and Russia who are very focused on organization and control and believe that making sure that populations have a limited number of options that they can choose themselves, but that'll be better for the, this is what they say, that'll be better for the greater good over time because we'll be able to become more wealthy because we're all doing the same thing and organizing in the same way. If we have you know, protests and people wanting to go off in different directions, we won't be able to develop in the way that'll make us all wealthier and so on. Very material driven societies. Mm. The West, on the other hand, is becoming more and more potentially fragmented by its focus on people's rights, um, the need for um, absolute freedom in some regards, and in some cases, some you people... You think so? We've also gone very left in the West as well. Yeah, but um, in, in that sense, you know, that's... We say the, left. the role of the individual is getting part of the bigger group. You're right. But that, I, I think of that actually as, you're right, in the West, because that is really just the other side of... This whole left and right thing is... Being played out it's right better, now. It's better to put to one side when you think about the way in which political organization affects people's lives, because it's not about what people calling themselves... Well, left and right. The, depends it, which it, part of the world you're at. Well, moment. but it's about but it's about what laws they put in place, sure. and what ways in which people can engage in the political process, uh, or not. And it doesn't matter whether they call themselves left or right. If they don't, if they don't allow you to have a vote, then you can't engage in the political process. If they put in place laws uh, which don't allow you freedom of expression, it doesn't matter whether they're left or right. It's all totalitarian. That's the best way to think of it. Is just totalitarian. Couldn't agree more. And you, you're right. Lost in in some ways. It's actually a new version of totalitarianism. I don't know what the best way to well, socialism describe is on the rise. It. Yeah, but if you think about it's it's, it's actually interest group totalitarianism. It's just my interests and my, and my group's interests are not allowing people to challenge this because this is what's right. Yeah, well, I know hold, this hold, is hold, right. but also then you want to go down that path and we'll talk about journalism in a second and your exposure to that cancel culture. How has that got prevalent in the world of democracy when you say? something, or maybe attributed saying something 15 years ago, and you're nailed for it. Yeah. Or you can't stand up and express a view that being pulled apart because in the world of democracy, which we fought for, as you say, back to Plato, et cetera, and Socrates, et cetera, what is going on out there that we're allowing that to be the, the discourse of the day? Well, that's a big question and a hard one to, to solve. But I mean, I think the important thing is to call it out, is to say that but, but it's is wrong. It? Is it? Well, that's I called th- character, and that's called courage, and that's called leadership. Yeah. You're seeing a lot of it? Yeah. Are you? No, not a lot of it. We're not seeing a lot of it, but I think it's important that, that it is called out. People have a right to argue for what they think is right. 100%. And so what they don't have a right to do is to demand that other people don't even put an alternative view, that they're not allowed to put an alternative view. And that's what we've got to continuously call out. And I, and I do think senior politicians and others are trying hard to do that. Well, are they, are they think, attacking are they attacking the actual problem or are they attacking you? Well, I, I don't think senior politicians in particular, I think I'm thinking federally and state here. Yeah. There are a few notable exceptions. I'm not, not gonna name, but I no. think that um 
do generally do their best to say to people, our job, all of us collectively, is to engender a civil society. That's why it's called civil society. We listen to other people. We can disagree with other people. We don't try and shut other people down. There is a line that can be crossed, but for me, and this is obviously will vary for individuals, it's a long, 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 long way down the line before you cross a line to say that you're not allowed to speak publicly about something. I mean, I do think there is genuine hate speech, and I do think there is incitement to violence, which is just not helpful to anyone, and I think that we should not allow that. But that's... You don't think, it's, over, don't think it's overplayed a bit? Well, I think from time to time it probably is, but that's, yeah, that's but people that's, that's arguing their interests, story out too, right? and people need to be... People need to be strong on that. Mm. I mean, a lot of this has come out of, I mean, the, the, we know where this has come from. It's come from U.S. universities, and it's come from California, and and it's come from the entertainment industry. It's not like something that's been visited on us. No, but we've, we've, we've all jumped on the bandwagon. Well, a lot aliens. of people have jumped on the bandwagon. Yeah, they haven't caught they have. it out, as you say. I think it's because people don't think clearly enough about it. They weirdly don't think, oh, this could happen to me, <laughs> because it could. They do things to other people that they wish would never happen to them. They just don't think about it. Yeah, for And they're really tied up with their own interests, and they think, this is the most important thing for me, and I'm right, they're wrong, I've got to shut them down. It's that last bit that's wrong. You might be right. You might not be right, but you might be right. But you don't have to shut them down. You're not allowed no, to right. shut them down. You shouldn't be allowed to shut them down. Other people can say, should be able to say exactly what they want, except for that line, which is a long way down the track, that they shouldn't cross. You walk out a better person when you got that degree? Uh, I walked out a better dinner party conversationalist. <laughs> no, I was more knowledgeable. And what, what it really has done has spurred my later reading. It's made me very, you know, you, the old saying that you, the more you know, the more you know, there's a lot you don't know. It's directed my reading a lot since then. So I've read more about economics and philosophy generally since I've left than when I was there doing the degree. Did you want to move into business? Yep. I first worked for McKinsey & Company in London for about three years. And that's an MBA on the run? That's an MBA on the run. That's exactly right. Well, actually, yeah. they were pretty explicit about it the first. When six, you weren't young either. I wasn't young. I was in my probably 2930? 30, yeah, yeah. 2930. Yeah. But see, that's another thing. And it's something I would say is a, is a good learning for me. But And I would say to other people, if you feel like it's time for a change or you want to change, you want to do something else, it's never too late. Don't worry. You know, I, I had to go back to university. I went to back to university at 26, 27, doing an undergraduate degree with a whole lot of 18 and 19-year-old little kids running around. I didn't mind. It didn't bother me at all. It was great to be in that environment. In fact, the undergraduate environment, the young people's environment, is the, is the most sparky, energetic, stimulating. stimulating part of a university, I think. Yeah. So to go back into that was quite fun. You just have to not feel like any sense of, um, what's the right word, just that you are somehow have some advantage. I found this all through my life. Whenever I've changed a job or I've gone back, I've never felt that I had any right to be successful just because of what I'd achieved previously. Okay, so I won the, won the Rugby World Cup and I had a medical degree and then went back to being an undergraduate at Oxford University studying something I knew nothing about, philosophy, politics, and economics. So my attitude was, okay, well, I better get off my butt and work hard because I've got no right to be better than this. I've probably got less right to be better than any of these really bright young kids from schools here in the UK. And similarly with jobs, when I've changed jobs to a new I'll job, that That's yeah, I've, I've really just said, well, back to square one. You've got to learn exactly what it takes to be successful in, in this new job. So why'd you choose McKinsey's? Well, what did they choose you? It's an interesting question. They, well, they were available, but 
I long think about it. It was a question of whether I would go back to New Zealand or not, because if I was going to continue with the medical degree, I needed to go back to New Zealand to start on a a specialist training course to become a specialist in something. What were you going to be a specialist in? I don't know. I was probably going to be a surgeon, I think, actually. Sounds a bit boring to say I was going to be an orthopedic surgeon, because that's what lots of sports kind of related people do, because there's lots of sports injuries. But... Um, that would have been a possibility. Maybe plastic surgery would have been a possibility, you know, not reconstructive surgery. Yeah, okay. Not cosmetic. Yeah. And one of the reasons is because it's hard and difficult. And you, and you, and you, and you're on the edge all the time, right? Yeah. And you create it. If you can really do something great for something, someone in the reconstructive sense, you change their lives. Yep. And so, you know, really fundamentally doing, doing good work was, would have been probably what I was looking for. But, um, so what changed? I didn't want to go back for two reasons. One is, I was on the verge of thinking maybe I don't want to be a doctor when I'm 50 or 40. It's just because once I get through my 30s and I have a, I'm a specialist, there'll be a set of operations and a set of patients and a set of illnesses or disorders that I need to deal with, mm. and they'll be the same. Nothing much will change. I'll be able to do, possibly if I was in a teaching environment, a teaching hospital, I'd be doing some teaching, I'd possibly do some research. But it just felt like to me more of a narrowing. I was sort of thinking out 20 or more years. Yep. So that was one part of it. And the other part was the rugby part. I genuinely did not want to go back into the rugby environment. And I still would have only been about 28, 29. And I just, and it wasn't just the playing environment, going back to be a player, which I could have done. It would have been um, just the whole environment. You know, New Zealand is quite a, a enveloping environment when it comes to rugby. So there's more to you. So than, I just wanted to, to stay away rugby. for longer. Yeah. And I wanted yeah, and I think that's you're right to say that I wanted to continue the development of David Kirk, David Kirk. non-rugby player. Yeah. Whatever other qualities and capabilities I had, I didn't want them to be not so much shadowed by, but just surrounded or by. Or labelled by. Yeah, or, and labelled by the rugby player. So the business career kicks off with… McKinsey. Great training. Best yeah. class, one of the best classes yeah, in town, Yeah, MBA, right? sent off to… Viva in Switzerland, where they did this MBA, people from all around the world, sort of 20 or 30 people there, had all these great teachers from universities in the US, and it was a very intense six-week period where we kind of did, as you said, a, it was called, it was explicitly called a mini MBA. Yeah. We basically squashed a year's worth of MBA into six weeks. You're listening to the No Limitations podcast, brought to you by Blenheim Partners. Blenheim Partners is an international board and executive search firm working with chairs, directors, CEOs, and senior executives on their most critical people choices. For more information, visit BlenheimPartners.com. You don't do things at half measure, do you? No, it was quite good. I, I quite enjoyed it, though, because a lot of other people around me, I like having other people around me, because a lot of other people like me. They'd come from engineering or they'd come from somewhere else. Because yep. this was specifically for the non-business school students. Yep. So these are the people who had done everything but business, yep. but they were bright and interested in the career and business. So it was a lot of people on the same page and very mixed, you know, lots of women, lots of men yep. from different parts of the world. There was a guy there that had been the mayor of a small French town. Yeah, right. But, um, and I, I remember him well, people from Germany, the Berlin Wall had just come down. Yeah, right. Yeah, and of so course. I remember giving out small pieces of the Berlin Wall, which I've still got. Um, so, you know, that was also, that was the next step in sort of in my internationalization, I suppose, as well after the university. Because I've been a very, you know, small town guy from small, faraway country. So great platform. Yeah. Three years? Three years, about three years, yeah. Okay. They're all in London. 
So I worked in the UK you, company. Oh, I worked a bit in Brussels, actually. I was and you, were you covering any particular sectors or were you, you uh, No, in those early days that? you almost invariably rotate around, but I did retail and some man- manufacturing being brewery. I did some property work. Um, yeah, a lot of probably a lot of retail and, and consumer goods manufacturing as well. All right. So. Good, broad platform, yeah. Okay, but home came calling. Yeah, well, <laughs> the funny thing was the High Commissioner for New Zealand in London was a guy named, by the name of George Gare. He was a very nice guy. He'd been a very successful politician over a long period of time, retired, and was, was highly regarded and, and became New Zealand's High Commissioner in, in London. He rang me up when I was at McKinsey and said that the Prime Minister, who at that day, or he, he was ex-Prime Minister, but he stayed on in Parliament for a bit, Rob Muldoon was retiring. Oh, Peggy Muldoon. Peggy Muldoon oh, was, right, re- yeah. was retiring from Parliament uh, in his by-election. And they felt like the National Party, which is the equivalent of the Liberal Party in Australia, felt like there was, um, they didn't have a strong enough candidate. There were some local candidates, but so they thought it'd be great if I went back and um, put my, threw my hat in the ring. So uh, I don't know why. I almost don't know why I did it. My wife was um, very pregnant and... Um, but nevertheless, I, for whatever reason, maybe I was just having a boring time for the moment at McKinsey, but I decided to, to do it. I think, you know, partly the degree in philosophy, politics, mm. and economics kind of had, was resonating. And a lot of people so. who did that degree did go into politics. Yep. There was a, a sense of a calling. What's application too. Yeah. And, and so I, you know, that was part of it, I think. And that had also taught me, and, and it's something that stayed with me throughout, that good public policy is really important. It affects the lives of lots and lots of people. And in particular, it doesn't matter what side of the, the political fence you're on, and you know, largely, you know, we're all largely centre something, centre left, centre right, these days in the leading parties. Um, you know, you can make a big difference in the lives of particularly people who who are disadvantaged. People who, you know, if you get your education systems right, if you get your health systems right, if you get your social services systems right, which help people and lift them up and intervene at the right time, you know, dysfunctional families, there's a whole range of you know, intergenerational problems you can deal with, for instance, on that side. And of course, public policy that helps you know, economic growth and wealth creation, which can then be redistributed appropriately, is super important as well. So it was very clear in my mind that public policy is a calling, it's really important. And, and, and for some reason, I wasn't really a, didn't want to be a public policy wonk. You know, I didn't want to go and join Treasury or join the Department of Foreign Affairs or join the Department of Labor and do a whole lot of good analytical work to help with public policy. I guess from the rugby and the leadership roles, I felt like Statesman. pushing myself forward a bit more. But it was on the basis of wanting to be involved in leadership positions which would support public policy, good public policy development. Hey, but I'm not having to chat with the former Prime Minister of New Zealand. What happened? Well, I, did, <laughs> I went back. I went back, I flew back. Oh, well, sounds good in theory. I arrived, in the, I arrived on the morning that the nominations closed. I got my nomination in and they whittled them. So they said, okay, yep, we'll accept your nomination. They whittled us down to five five potential candidates. This is what's called pre-selection in yeah, Australia. Yeah, yeah. It's called selection to be the candidate in, in New Zealand. And so uh, they whittled down to five candidates and I was one of those five. Sure been, aren't you? Yeah, well, you might have thought so. But um, I didn't think so. And then the five candidates had to go around and meet with there was seventy something um, candidates who were who were I'm sorry members who were the voters yeah. they, they voted on in the over in the party yeah yeah and you had to go around and meet them and talk to them and tell yeah. them why you thought you'd be a good candidate for the electorate to go to parliament 
And so I did all that, and that took about a week or two, and some really nice people in the electorate helped me and helped me do that as well as I could. Uh, and then we had the we had the vote. Mm. And the vote was for, there were five of us, and the 76 um, trooped out and did their vote, and we stood on the stage, and then they told us, they read out who, who got the least votes, and that person dropped off. And so we went from five to four, and then we trooped, out again, and they came back, and we went down to three. Pretty painful. Yeah, pretty painful. We <laughs> <laughs> went down to three. And then we tripped out again, and they came back and said, oh, one person's got over the 50%. And so, therefore, you know, that person's now elected. And that person was the person who'd been working in the electorate for a very long period of time, was the nominee, was the was supported by Rob Muldoon, who yeah, was okay. going out as his long-term, you know. Understudy type Understudy thing. type thing. Yeah, right. And the aged members had decided that they would go with loyalty. And, you know, I, I, so I, I, the, I uh, respect the that. coming through. I respect that. <laughs> right. I remember Bridget walking, <laughs> when we, my wife Bridget, when we were walking down the corridor, it was, in a, it was in a school, so we're in the school hall on the stage, walking down the corridor of the classroom for them to, you know, count the votes and do the, about the third time. She says to me quite loudly, God, I hope you lose this. <laughs> she So that, in a sense, was a good thing. I think she was, she found the whole kind of, like, Tough gig, process, isn't it? yeah, tough gig, tough gig for families. And so, in any event, running on, I was on my way back to to uh, London and to continue with McKinsey, and I got a call from the Prime Minister's office, and they said, "I've you know seen you stood for selection. Would you like to join the Prime Minister's office and be part of our team, and particularly focused on policy development? And because you actually, I was in a political appointment, but I was focused on policy development as a connection between the PM's office." not the PM's department, which is a whole lot of highly capable civil servants, but the PM's office, which is running the politics and running and running, you know, just the management of the government. Yeah, like PMC. Yeah. Yep. To help combine our policy priorities with political outcomes. So basically... Renewable role. Yeah, yeah. Mostly what I was doing, I mean, I used to get cap cabinet papers, papers every week. I, after a couple of years, I moved up to be a chief policy advisor in the prime minister's office. And basically what I was doing was ensuring that, was helping the public sector ensure that when they, as they developed policy, it was consistent with the political um, ends of the government. What, you know, really, what was in the Prime Minister's head? What was the Prime Minister thinking about this piece of policy? So I could spend time with the Treasury and with the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet and any other department, helping with the very senior, the Prime Minister, the Treasurer, what their views were. Actually, sometimes there's a bit of a tension between the Prime Minister and the Treasurer. Or New Just a little bit here and there. The was a Minister of Finance in New Zealand. Yeah. So helping helping do that. And, and I thought it was a really, really worthwhile job. And I helped write a you know, long-term policy for the for the party as well, or for the, you know, the government going into the next election. Um, so it was all about long-term public policy, but with a political slant. Wanted forward a few years. You're CEO of a major publication house and the biggest in the country here in Australia. But just filling in the gaps, as you said earlier, you had the ability to not only be a leader, but also lead different industry. Yeah. Want to talk us through that? Yeah. Um, well, after I left the Prime Minister's office, I went, it was, it was like, I'm now in my mid-30s. Yeah, 34. Yep. And I've still got a you know, relatively low-paying job. And we've got two children and... and 
So what's the mindset? Third on the way. Mindset, trying to play catch up now on that or, or what? Yeah, to some extent, yes, it is. So you've got to run really hard. And, but it's also finding a job which still plays to your skills. So you're not, it's not like you're, you're a babe in the woods. And so I moved into New Zealand's largest conglomerate, which is Fletch Challenge. In the, and I was in the energy division. Yeah. And they had, um, I was the joint venture with two other parties with the largest offshore gas and condensate fields, which is light oil. Yep. And there was a joint venture body which ran it. And also there was a trading, gas and condensate trading business, which was sort of nascent. And there was a whole range of you know, other contractual and relationship stuff. So I didn't go into running a business when I immediately came out, but it played to my strengths of leadership and, and intellect and ability to work with other partners in the joint venture. Mm -hmm. So that's what I came out of. So I came into, you know, learned all about energy basically, but from a context, I didn't have to learn about, um, you know, how to figure out whether the wiggly lines on the seismographs meant there was oil down there or not. I needed none of the technical capability, but I needed leadership capability and I needed to build relationships and the intellect to help build a trading business, buying and selling gas and condensate. So I went to visit Enron and, and um, that's oh, right. part of that. Oh, Houston is part of that. So that was um, that was interesting, but that's another, another yeah, track. Well. So there was that. And from there, I just, you know, continued to, to build my capability, worked in pulp and paper and sort of supply chain. So that was really managing warehouses and raw materials and manufacturing and then stepped up to actually running a division, which was the Australasian division of Fletch Challenge Paper, which then was sold to Norske Skoog, which is a Norwegian company. Yep. So I then worked for a big uh, global conglomerate, the largest newsprint manufacturer in the world, mm -hmm. and traveled lots of times to Norway, sort of over a two-year period. Must have gone to Norway about 14 or 15 times. But it was good. It was, it was great um, engagement with another culture and another another way of you know learning. Yeah, and so there I then moved into public company. It was sort of, I'd run a big division of a global company mm -hmm. and a public company seemed a natural next step and, and PMP, which was a printing and media services business, yep. had been spun out of um, news, I think, many years ago mm. and it was a, it had a lot of magazines at that stage, but those yep. magazines had been sold to seven yep. media and that was Pacific Magazines and the, the printing and all the media services. Um, were there. There was quite a lot of restructuring to do there and upgrading of the printing capability, tough industry. Both the pulp and paper industry and the printing industry exposed me, you would think of it, these days exposed me to a lot of union work. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so we had... So I had um, Pretty militant. Uh, yeah, and it helped prepare me for, for, <laughs> for Fairfax, which we weren't as militant. You know, there, there weren't so many burning drums outside at the um, outside the gates of manufacturing facilities at at Fairfax, but there was still quite a lot of industrial action there. So it prepared me for that and, and the way to constructively and positively deal with that, which I think is the right way to talk about industrial disputation. Yeah. It's got to be constructive. It's not a fight. You've got to try and not make it a fight. There are differences of opinion and they'll only be resolved if, if people um, understand each other's point of view and are acting in the best interest of the organization long term. So that was very good training and I had good people around me for that. So yeah, so PMP did well. And then from there, it was a fairly natural for me, but not probably for some other people looking from the outside to take the step to be chief executive of Fairfax Media. Got the phone call? Got the phone call. Yeah, I actually got the phone call. What was what was going on at the time? What were you? Well, I got, I got the phone call probably nine months or a year, more than that, a year before I actually took it up. 
because they were looking for to replace Fred Hilmer, who was chief executive and was intending to retire. But they came to me too early. I hadn't really, I just felt it was completely unfair to the people who had hired me at PMP, the board at PMP, just to, you know, leave after a year. And there was lots to do and there was, and we were doing a lot. So I said no. And then they came back a year later and said, you know, position's still available and we, we'd like to consider you. What did Fairfax want to do? When I started. Yeah, well, what are you, you know, you're the new CEO. What were you going to do? It was recognised when I arrived, but not necessarily acted on with the urgency and the decisiveness that I did start with, but it was recognized that we needed to hedge or prepare for the fact that we were going to be losing classified advertising in the big newspapers, which were very genuinely the rivers of gold. So advertising was going to move out of print and it was going to move online and it was going to move to other places, but we had to deal with that existential fact. Okay. Now we go back to what you said earlier, when you play for the All Blacks, you know what the game's about. The culture is passed through. Generation to generation, skipper to skipper, captain to captain. Yep. And other great organisation that permeates through. Yep. This place had had to be changed. It did. I mean, to be fair, they recognised the problem. They tried to compete head to head um, with the three classified verticals, jobs, homes and cars, but it lost, unfortunately. Yep. So, you know, Seek, REA and car sales had won and they were all independent. They weren't under the wing of a major print and they were to some extent, stifled by being under the under the wing. That was a problem and the challenge um, was to develop that type of capability, but it couldn't be done inside the traditional ways of doing things inside Fairfax. So, unfortunately, all of those three, those three were more or less spoken for. News Limited had their foot on REA, Seek was, Packer had CPH organisation, PBL, yep. I think it was, owned, you know, 20, 30% of that. Yes. And car sales, we had a small shareholding in. Yeah. Um, and so did Packer organization. So it was sort of, it would have been hard to move up there. Um, both of us, they would have, you know, tried to block or buy it. So anyway, that looked hard to buy anything or make major investment in anything in Australia. But New Zealand was an opportunity and so we bought Trade Me. So I started in about September and we inked the deal and paid the money. On, in March. Then expensive, expensive, according to the press, wasn't it? Yeah, really expensive. <laughs> I got I got pilloried by the by all the shareholders because the share and this is a, you had to go into full defence there at one stage, didn't you? Yeah, no, I was very, uh, openly criticised by the Peter Morgans and the and the, and other people who who later was gracious enough to say that he felt it was the right thing and he would be wrong. So, um, but you know, they were just publicly. Critical. So what have you done? You should never have spent this much money of our money on this small country. And they compared it at the time, they compared it to MySpace. Because oh, yeah, News Limited yeah. and Rupert Murdoch had just bought MySpace. And, so you're just a copycat, are you? Is yeah, that what well, saying? no, they said that MySpace is huge. It's got the whole US. It's got all these other ways of, of growing and succeeding. And you bought this piddly little thing in New Zealand and you've paid way over the top. You paid more per you know, dollar of earnings or revenue yeah. than Rupert Murdoch's paid. Which my response to that was, and I still think it was the right response, mm. well, that's all very well. You can talk as much as you like about the size of the market and, and the product and the fact that it's connecting with youth culture and all the rest of the other things you're, you're saying, but what's the business model? How does it make money? I don't have any idea what the business model is, and I don't think you do either. But I know exactly what the business model is. I know exactly how Trade Me makes money, and, I, and, I, and, and it's extremely profitable, and it will continue to grow. And 
that's proven to be the case. MySpace went to zero or negative because they put hundreds of millions of dollars into it and they didn't get anything at the end. And Trade Me went from 700 and 650 million Aussie to whatever it was. It was like 1.7 billion or something. I can't remember. Was the board on side? Yeah, the board was on side. Well, the board, it wouldn't have happened if the board wasn't on side. They weren't. And I give the board a lot of credit. Quite a bit of work, wouldn't it? I give the board a lot of credit because they didn't really understand it. Yeah. Yeah, they understood enough. But they trusted the chief executive. They said, well, we've hired this person to, to help us make this transition. We've got to, we've got to back them. And so they did and, and it worked out well. Bigger picture, role of news. Are we getting accurate news? I think, um, yes, largely. Are we? A lot of news. Are we getting slanted news, left and right? Well, it's a bit slanted, but it's always been a bit slanted. Yeah? Yeah. We're all intelligent people. We know that the ABC (laughs) is a great news-gathering organisation, serves Australia really well, but it is also people by by people who are genuinely left of centre when it comes to their politics. Yeah, well, I'm paying tax not to have that, aren't I? Well... I take the view. I know. <laughs> I'm not going to respond to the enormous public. Uh, no, no, I'm not trying to take you down that path. Political ever, but, question. But, but I news is important, that, correct? I take the view that they should try their hardest to keep their personal politics or the politics of their group, and therefore the politics of everyone they have lunch with at the ABC, mm. trying their best to keep it out of it. And I think yeah. they 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 do a pretty good job of it most of the time. Mm-hmm. But when they don't, and there are some specific programs which are talk programs and oh, interview yeah, programs. Yeah. That you know come from a particular angle. We'll yeah, just, yeah. I, I take it. the view, just grow up and, and accept it for what it is. You yep. might learn something Absolutely. anyway. Yep. If you don't agree with it, don't agree with it. Feel free to yell at the TV. Yeah, sure. But um, I don't think we have to get too exercised about it. Um, I do think it's not a bad thing, though, that there's tension, that there is that the ABC is held to account by Senate and House committees who interview them and ask some questions about how they do their best to be Unbiased? Yeah, but there's a question for you, David. As a journo, you're living on the edge, aren't you? You mean income-wise? Or? Yeah, yeah. Well, it depends. And how you're nice. measuring success. It's clicks. If you're working for a big masthead or you're working for the ABC or something like that, that's not true. Yeah, but how many are retained full-time these days? That's been um, slashed and burnt. Less, yeah. fewer, but in the big organisations, still quite a few. You know, there's a decent... Okay, so I'm looking from a point of view, you know, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a war going on in Ukraine at the moment. mm we hear a lot of the stuff from the right-hand side. I don't hear what the Russians necessarily are saying. And a lot of the world supports not what they're doing, but some of the Russian causes, as you say earlier. We don't get a lot of both sides in terms of information. Yeah, you, I mean, that is right. We do not get the Russian side of the of the, of the war in Ukraine I'm not saying supporting all. it, but I need sometimes no, no, it'd be nice no. to have a fully informed view whereas I can make my decision which way. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know... I'm just sort of thinking of the broader picture, David, of news yeah, in this, this country this has is been broader presented. Than, this is broader than the broader picture of news because this is about values. It's about... Yeah, but as a CEO of, a, of, a, of an organisation like that, how does it work? And you've got your editors, right, obviously. You have yeah. to. Okay, do you come in over the top? Very rarely. Did you have to? If ever. I had discussions with them about things, but I, did, I, I never was in a position to or wouldn't ever direct them. Hypothetical. I'm WikiLeaks. I've got a great story for you. Would you ever run it? The guy may have to bolt to out of Hong extent, Kong and go to live in Russia for the rest of his life. I would say the only thing that would cause me not to run it, if it was in the if it was in the public policy, would have been if the release of that information would lead to the the death or otherwise uh, some other you know, very serious problems, you know, incarceration or something, of people you could name and they were there. 
So, I mean, I would say you'd have you'd have a an obligation, a duty not to cause people's deaths or for them Absolutely. to be yep. put in prison. It's a tough corporate, but, isn't it? Yeah, but that's a that's a pretty high bar. Most of the time, there's never that's never ever the issue, and so people, you know, it's best to print everything that journalists can can uncover. Okay, but if you look right now, we look at say January sixth in the US, you got Fox putting out. 45,000 worth of hours of video that was held by government, right? And the left saying, you know, their reasons why this wasn't put out. But the general public, are they better informed as a result? And therefore, they guess the role of news, I'm not saying support Fox or whatever news, but I'm actually looking at what's being withheld. Why aren't those leading these major media organizations doing the right thing? Yeah. Well, I mean, I can't answer for them, but, but you know, fake news obviously is terrible because it totally undermines really undermines what is true. Truth is hard to get to in, in, in life, and it's hard to get to in journalism, but you know, doing your best, authenticating your sources, going back multiple times, talking to other people, getting multiple views on the situation. Most journalists really do do the right thing. They try hard to get it right, which doesn't mean to say that the work won't come from a particular perspective, because if they're working... If they're embedded in Ukraine, for instance, sure. and they're doing work with the Ukrainians, it's going to be a story from the Ukrainian perspective. Yeah. Yep. And th- and you could say, oh, but that's not balanced. But it's not intended to be balanced, particularly if it's if it's just reporting a particular situation. Um, if it's a big, long feature, which is supposed to be about the war and the causes of the war and the rights and wrongs of the war, then clearly you've got to have both sides and you've got to inform readers really clearly about both sides and they can make their own mind up about what they think is important. It just sort of makes me think through, you know, the nature of your role at that time. Well, anyone's got that role. It's it's a big role. It was a big role, yeah. And we were going through a lot of, it's not only that you've got a big organisation that's got a really important place in society, mm. you know, big independent newspapers, because we were independent. Yep. And, you know, news is not independent in the same way. And so we had an important role to play. And we had the capability. We had the resources. We had big mastheads. We're making lots of money and we had a lot of people and they big newsrooms and we did a lot of, did a lot of work. So a lot of good work and we had great editors. So those papers, the age and the Sydney morning Herald and the, and the financial review in particular, Australian financial review did great work, did really great work and was very proud to be sitting on top. I think it was... But the landscape was changing, wasn't it? The landscape was changing a lot. And my job, I wasn't a journalist or an editor. Okay. My job was to was to adapt the, the company to make it long-lasting. Yeah. So it could continue to do its good work as a centre of journalism. And in order to do that, it needed to be profitable and highly profitable because we're employing a whole lot of highly expensive, highly capable people. Yep. And so that was that was really my job. And my job was also to communicate clearly with the organisation about where we were going and what we were doing. And my job was to represent the organisation publicly. So, you know, you've got to know what, what your job is. I and mean, not, I'm not there to argue with the sub-editors about where you put the commas. No. I'm, I'm, I'm there to, to, to grow the business and to yeah. cut costs where it's necessary and to make acquisitions where they can be value creative in the long term. And... How'd you go? What mark do you give yourself? Because it's a tough gig. I'm going to go for a seven, six to seven. Six, six. All right. Okay. Six to well, seven. Because <laughs> it's a high bar because, because you know, it's really tough. Gig. If I know, say, right? if I say, what would, what would, because it can only be judged in the long term. 
Yeah. Um, so what, your investments worked out well. Yeah, yeah, they did. Trade me and and stays. Stays was we bought it for low double digit millions of dollars and sold it. Was sold. They they, they bought put more capital into it and bought more things and done a good job of building it up after I left. So can't claim you know all the credit for that at all. But for two hundred and fifty million or something, and then there was trade me, which they took sort of I don't know, it must have been four or five hundred million of dividends out over the period, and then sold for one point two or three million. I can't remember exactly now. Okay, but you're still counting on a six or a seven. What? So all of that was really important and good for the balance sheet yeah. to allow Fairfax to then move into, um, you know, to move into the merger with Nine, yeah. which has now made a sustainable, diversified media company. Yep. I've been part of the, doing some of the things necessary on the journey, and certainly my successes have added a great deal to that as well. Yeah, so I played my part, I guess. You're not giving yourself the top marks. I'm not giving myself the top marks. And the reason I'm doing that is that the gold medal, if you like, in running that business would have been to have continued to maintain it as a standalone business with great newsrooms, but with strong digital properties that could could help fund really top-class journalism. Was it possible? I've thought a lot about that. A, that's a question I've thought a lot about afterwards. It would have been very difficult, but I think there was one path that now I think about it in retrospect that I might have taken that might have worked, but um, only one, and it would have meant I wouldn't have had, I wouldn't have gone another path. You never know unless I'd done it, unless we'd done it. The team had done it there. You want to share what it was? Would have done it. Yeah, I can share what it was. What we did was the next acquisition or the next merger after Trade Me, the big one, um, was with. Rural Press. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there was a good reason for that, and they were able to, very good cash flow business, and that was able to help fund the transition because there was lots of costs of moving to a fully sort of multi-platform digital media company. Yes. Digital-led media company. But a more risky path than that would have been to scrape all our money together and possibly do capital raising and take on a bit more debt and buy a really big chunk of one of the listed classified, online classified businesses. Probably would have been car sales. Yep. And just buy 20%, which you're only allowed to buy 20. Which is gone, until you, gone, gone. Yeah, until you, yep. until you go over the, over the, oh, um, yeah. the compulsory sure. acquisition threshold. Yep. And then creep thereafter and, because you couldn't afford it, couldn't possibly have afforded to buy the whole thing. But buy a big chunk of that and then creep thereafter and try and get up to 30 or 40%. It's really the news position in REA, yeah. try and get the similar position. Thinking about it after I'd left, some years after I left, that would be that would have been the other route, I think. And uh, but it would be more risky and more difficult to execute. Might not have been possible to execute, but um, something worth mulling on. Did it finish as well as you like to? Um, not really, but I'm not sure it was ever going to finish any better. So Tough I can't really I can't really construct a scenario. Where we all went out with a, um, with a, you know, the, suddenly the economics of print media had suddenly changed and we were able to pull off something different. If we'd gone that other route that I've just talked about and had been able to pull that off and over years it crept up and we're getting lots of cash flows out of that business, which is another big if, because if you don't own 50%, you can't you know, control where the cash goes necessarily. So just trying to change Fairfax as it was post the Royal Press acquisition 
was always going to be a really long, hard grind. And with a sort of, because the share price fell not long after that, the new new investors, the Royal Press investors, they owned about 15% or a bit less. So it wasn't a huge amount of the company. Yeah, right. But they were you know, pretty disgruntled because they bought with them a group of investors too. Pretty disgruntled because it merged and their share price had dropped. The reality is the share price of, of Royal Press would have, stand alone would have dropped as well significantly over time, but it would have been a bit delayed. But, you know, that was also the time of the, the GFC, 2008, 2009. So there was lots of fallout over that. Conscious, we're um, going to have the timeline here, but next leap. Fairfax. You've gone, well, you've left, you moved on. Yeah, I left, yeah, moving on from Fairfax. I took a bit of time out then, actually. First time I'd ever actually done that, six months, about six months. Didn't really, it was really probably a period to determine whether I wanted to go back into being a chief executive of a large company, public or private, or I wanted to do a range of things. I don't think I really concluded. I didn't come to a definitive answer, but was leaning definitely not to going back to being another chief executive. I'd been chief executive of a major regional division of a global company. I'd been chief executive of public, two publicly listed companies. I didn't really know what I was going to do, but I, but I think probably not jumping back into that. So private equity was the next thing that I thought, well, that's interesting. I haven't had much to do there. It's private. <laughs> I haven't come out of public companies. Um, the private part of it seemed quite attractive. And then, so I just talked to people I knew, in particular, Tim Sims at Pacific Equity Partners, oh, yeah. known, okay. known for a while. Yep. And I you know, just learned a bit about the industry doing that. And then, as it sort of luck would have it, really, it wasn't actually Tim, it was other partners in the firm who were involved with it, but one of their investments, they were looking for an executive chairman, like two or three day a week job, to take the business through to listing, be a public company, and they had a lot of public company experience. So... So I joined them. I joined well, the board of Hoyts, which is the cinema, and had a good advertising business too, which clearly I knew a bit about. So, yeah, so I so I enjoyed that. It was not a full-time job. And I picked up, a, um, when Fairfax decided to float trade me, they asked me to come back and be the chairman. So I came back to be the chairman of the of the listed Fairfax. The irony there. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's it's magnanimous as well. I yeah, think no, but it, due to the grief that you've originally caught, you, know, you received. Um. Yeah, that's true, yeah. But it was all very successful now, so everyone was all fine. And, you know, the board and, and Roger Corbett was the, was the chairman at the time, and he was a good chairman, and it was a tough environment. And, and he, you know, he, he certainly was supportive of me coming back as the chair of Trade Me and could see and understood, you know, the contribution that I'd made when I was when I was there. So that was all good. I also joined Forsyth Bar, which was a funds management and it does a lot of things, you know, markets-based business in New Zealand. And I was on the board and now I'm the chair there, so that's, that's a private company as well. So that sort of was the core of my little portfolio of doing things. And then you things. created your own. Yeah. Hoyts came to an end because everything in private equity has to come to an end sooner or later. Sold yep. to sold to Wanda in China and yeah, got a good result. And then I sort of stood, stood back and thought, well, actually the right side of the table to be on here uh, is the people allocating the capital. Yep. Because then, you know, you can grow your own business. You're, you're really in charge is probably not the right word, not really the word I'm looking for, but it's just you You are kind of, you have, you know, I'm not working for someone else. People are working to get the best out of the capital that I'm managing. And it's a lot of clear alignment, right? Yeah. And so I felt like that was quite a good place to be. But, you know, at my age and experience was helpful, but it's late in your career to be starting a startup. I thought you're never too never too old to uh, <laughs> yeah. start saying, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what I thought at the time, and that is right. 
And I thought that, that I didn't, didn't hesitate for a moment at the time, but just like, okay, let's see, let's have a think about what, what do I know about? What, what am I potentially good at? And, yep. and what do I need? And, and my first thing was a partner. And so it was great with found a partner and Paul and the yep. two of us have, are aligned and we had very similar understandings. He's much got much more private equity experience than me and just, you know, deal based, just actually doing deals and, and, and really good at that. I had more of tech experience in those days because I'd come through the Fairfax route yep. and more business management experience. So that led us to you know, a bit at later stage. We didn't, we wanted to put reasonable amounts of money into later stage businesses where we could bring our capabilities to bear to help them, whether it was helping the management grow, uh, helping them with their management, you know, how they organize themselves, helping them find good people, their reporting, all the stuff that's about building businesses as opposed to funding businesses. Yeah, okay. So we wanted Different to philosophy. move on to that. Yep. Uh, and also there's quite a lot of, you know, there's new capital rounds and there's new raisings. So for both Paul and I, we sort of cross-fertilize really our core capabilities and both learn from each other and then build other people around us and build a team. Hey, what's with the Spanish name? Valador, yeah. Isn't it doesn't mean dance? Dancer, yeah. It's a sort of, it means dancer in Spanish, but it's a certain type of dancer. It's more of a flamenco type low-end dancer. It's like people's dancer. Okay. But it comes from a very specific place, actually. Unusual place. I happened to be reading at the time Hemingway and other books about bullfighting. Oh, yeah. And, well, The Sun Never uh, Sets. Yep. So on. And uh, Death in the Afternoon. Yep. And also um, just about general, generally about bullfighting. The history of bullfighting, where it's come from and how it's changed and all the rest of it. And I think we're talking about back in the 1920s or 30s, there was, a, the, the, there was two very famous bullfighters. One was Juan Hernandez, which is the one that he didn't name him that way. Hemingway wrote about, and also um, I'll remember the other name in a, a minute. Um, but I remember his nickname was Joselito, Jose Little Jose. The, they were the two of them who who basically were the were the sort of most famous bullfighters in Spain at the time, and they began this whole. And normally, it was like wave the cape in front of the bull and then run out of the way. They began the whole more sort of balletic approach of yeah, of standing still and moving the cape and having the bull move around you. And so on. So that was the beginning of the new style and so on. And these guys were the two most famous. And one sad afternoon in a dusty bull ring in, in Spain, Jose was killed. Mm. Killed by a bull called Bailudo. Oh, uh, right. And the bull, and the bull oh. was small and agile and, and oh, um, right? highly successful, yeah. And so <laughs> so I thought, oh, that sounds like a good name for a company that's got to be small, agile, and we hope will be successful. You've been successful? Yeah, we have. Yeah, we really have. Um, so what, what, what are you placed your bets on, which has really worked out well? Well, SiteMinder is our biggest returning business. So we invested in the business when it was about, we put about $5 million into it when it was, but more than that, when it was about $25 million. Now it's ASX listed over a, over, over a million. Yep. So we've taken it right through. It's got over 130 million of revenue sort of thing. We had about 5 million of revenue when we invested. So we've been on the journey with the management team and uh, all the way. So that's been a fantastic success. InstaCluster has also been a great success for a very sort of oh, yeah. technical business and what's called DevOps, software mm -hmm. development operations, uh, using open source software right. databases and tools. Yes. It's a great company. Um, we really wanted to go on with it, but a big international trade buyer came in and, and bought it for a great return for us. About the similar size when we invested and um, and sort of pretty similar returns to, to SiteMinder. So that's a great business. It was, and they're still there. It's based out of Canberra. Mm -hmm. Came out of University of Canberra. So the philosophy is it has to be a scale up, or do you have you got to move it a we're million pretty, miles an hour to get your backing or what? Yeah, we're pretty we're pretty scale ups. Yeah, we don't put any debt into the companies. We put equity into the businesses. We work hard with the management 
teams to help them grow quickly. We're investing behind good management teams and great business models and and good economics. Um, and we do everything we can to help them. And it's, it's really satisfying. It's funny, you know, we talked a lot earlier about, you know, being captain of the All Blacks and having the, that sort of role of leading and motivating and and so on. It's not exactly like that, but it's sort of a bit of a full loop and we've got young people really trying, really wanting their companies to be successful. And I've gotten, the firm has now got a heap of experience and capability and we can play it back and we can, we can pass on the things that have helped make us successful and help make other other companies in the portfolio successful. They're also holding chair roles in ASX-listed organisations. Yep, KMD Brands. Boards focusing enough on business or focusing too much on governance? Well, you've got to focus, always got to focus on governance. Yeah, I know that, and I know you're going to say that, but do you think we're <laughs> focusing enough on business to get the, you're in private, the world of well, private. Well, I can't, I can't talk about other boards that no, I'm no. on. Good answer My as own. well. <laughs> yeah, and I can't, I can't answer for other people, but I think it's a trap, so I can, I, I can, I can agree with you on that. Yeah, okay. It's a trap to get too caught up in trying to deal with the bureaucracy of governance and, and sustainability and stuff. You've got the best way in which, see, KMD Brands is a fantastic example, but that, that's one of the very few, very few companies. So for the audience, what, what's includes in KMD? Oh, sorry, KMD Brands is the holding company for the for the outdoor brands Kathmandu, uh, Rip Curl, and uh, Oboes. Yep. And that, we've actually put that together since I've been the, the chair, so I get take a bit of satisfaction of having led the board and management and through the process of taking KMD from being just Kathmandu to being a bigger house of outdoor brands, and hopefully that'll continue over time. But my point about that is to say is that KMD brands, all of those brands are now what's called B Corp certified, and the whole organisation is. And the only factory we own, which is a was is a a wetsuit factory in Thailand is also B Corp certified, which means in B Corp is an international corporation which does all of these assessments of the sustainability and the quality of governance in companies. And, and if they are prepared to certify you, you become B Corp certified. And all of our three companies, including the manufacturing facility, are now all B Corp certified, which is it's fantastic. I think it's probably one of the only companies in Australasia or maybe even the world, particularly one when they've got all these other companies underneath it. But the real point I was trying to make is in, in answer to your question about, you know, getting too carried away with governance and, and and not governing the business side of the business well enough. The best thing is to make sure you align your sustainability and your 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 goals with the outcomes of the of the business. And that's really possible in KMD brands because the KMD brands is all about the outdoors. And everyone that that works in that and all the products that we build uh, have an eye for the environment. We yeah, right. think about our environment, partly because it's, I guess it's the right way to position us as a company in today's age, but more because that's the way people that started the companies and ran the companies thought yeah, right. about the world. That's That was their mission is to, to to make great products, but also to do the right thing by the outdoors and by by nature and by the by the communities in which they were involved in. So it's baked into the DNA of the companies and, I, and we're lucky because that's the case, but I think all companies need to think about how do we make sustainability part of who we are and what we do and why we come to work. Um, and then it, then it becomes, it's not a trade-off between sustainable actions and activities and profitability. It's part of what you do. It's how you become profitable. What's your definition of sustainability? Because that, that can be widely used as well. Um, yeah, uh, I think sustainability is about investing in products, 
um, and people and the use of capital that is lasting for the stakeholders of the organisation. So that's, that's good business sense, isn't it? That yeah, part? that is good business sense. So, but that's, yeah. so it's the shareholders, it's other stakeholders, and it's the environment. The, and the environment in, in a wide range of ways. The environments in which we operate, where, where our offices are and so on, our customers who, who are our partners and making money, really. We make things for them and they give us money. And also the broader environment. And, and, and that does get you to the global environment as well. So it does get you to climate change and it does get us to, we take science-led approach to decisions around our contribution to reducing emissions and, and contributing to reducing global temperatures and, and climate change generally. You're getting tapped much to join other boards outside of your portfolio? Not for a while, actually, in which is, I've said no to a lot of things. So I think it's so quite, what do you, what do you right. say yes to then? Or what do you consider? Well, at the moment I'm pretty full. I'm just, I've got, you know, obviously yeah. we're running, we've got our own company, which is a majority yep. of the time. I've got the public company in Canby Brands. Yep. I've got a private company in, in Forsyth Bar. And I've got quite a wide range of um, not-for-profit things, which I do. Yep. And food rescue in New Zealand, yep. both both local food rescue, multi-local. Kiwi Harvest. Kiwi Harvest. Yeah, yeah. And also New Zealand Food Network, which is a, a national bulk food redistribution network, but again, a not-for-profit. Also the New Zealand Rugby Players Association, which we've had you know a lot to do with investment in New Zealand rugby in the last year. So we, that was very busy oh, yeah, the last couple up. of years, yeah, yeah. Um, getting that right. Uh, and also the Sydney Festival. So I'm the chairman of the Sydney Festival, which I've really loved and have been for some time. So a broad range of really interesting things. And that's keeps me pretty busy. All right. A bit of advice to those who are contemplating joining their first board. What should they say, really look at? Join a board that you like what they do. You're actually interested in what they do. If it's just the administration of a board, could be any board, then that's okay. And actually maybe for the first board and when people are looking to find the position, that may be necessary because, you know, they don't come up all the time. So that's great to get experience and to do, to do the best job you can. Obviously do the homework on that's a good company and well capitalized and well run and and you've got good relationship with the chair mm-hmm. and the chair's open and engaging and and wants everyone to contribute as much as possible uh, and you, there's a culture of openness in the organization and so you know you're not going to be walking into things hidden under the carpet um so all that sort of stuff that's your general due diligence if you join your board you're joining the, the management as a partner and helping them succeed and you're joining the shareholders as a partner in helping them succeed. So like what you do. I mean, I, I'm on the KMD brands because I love the outdoors and, and I love the people that love the outdoors. Yeah, right. It has some really nice perks, you know, going up to the North Shore of Hawaii and watching Pipeline and seeing all of the all of that part of the world is, is lovely and, and being able to go to Christchurch regularly where Kathmandu's headquartered and being able to, you know, go outside and do some outside things while you're there as well. You know, there's just there's just a sense that you're a... You're, and we, Oboes is based in Bozeman, Montana. Yeah, right. So, you know, we're having a board meeting in Bozeman this year. So I feel very lucky to do that. But I, w- but I wouldn't be involved with a company I didn't care about. Like, you know, I cared about Fairfax. I thought they did, we did important things and it was Absolutely. important that we had good independent journalism. In this. Yep. So I, I really, there was, a, there was a mission and a purpose. And I think, you know, Candy Brands has a mission and a purpose. I also think Forsyth Bar has a mission, a real clear mission and purpose, which is to help people save for financial freedom. You know, people's lives are better when they when they can invest and save and retire often 
um, with a degree of financial freedom, make choices. Um, so I, I'm like a lot of people, I think, increasingly purpose-driven in what I do and what I direct my time to. Philanthropy gives you a reward that you seek? There's different types of philanthropy. I mean, giving money, and I think that's it's good and highly necessary. I've always taken the view that giving time and giving expertise is actually more valuable. And so that's what I've done more of. I mean, I'm money is, there's lots of money around. It's hard to get sometimes, but the sort of skills and the experience I've had is not that common. And the ability to support inexperienced managers and in not-for-profit environments is pretty valuable. And um, it makes a big difference. And it makes a big difference to a lot of people. And a lot of the people who it makes a difference to are often quite underprivileged people or people in difficult circumstances. So that sort of waterfall effect from my capabilities and experience down to really helping people that need it, you know, that's pretty satisfying. What's next for David Kirk? <laughs> I do think about that from time to time. Not because I've, there's anything that I'm currently doing that I don't enjoy or want to give up. I just wonder about myself. I look back and I think, well, you've changed jobs a lot. You've developed different sides of you at different times of your life. What, is there another one? Is there something else out there? Obviously, when you're young, it's physical, it's sport. I mean, that's the time to develop those capabilities. As you get older, it's learning. It's you know, it's, it's quite specific. You've got to you know, go in and learn, a, learn an industry. I mean, obviously, I did more education, more intellectual activities after the sport. But when you get to this stage, it's a bit more difficult. I think the purpose-driven work is not going to go away. In any sense, it may still be like a publicly listed company that's got a real purpose, or it might be a private company or it might be a not-for-profit of some description that's always going to be part of the, the mix the question is more of a per, is more a personal one hmm. is there something that i which i don't know the answer to is there something i personally would like to do in you know in the next 20 years last 20 years of my life that would just be something that i would feel concluded the personal development journey i've been on right from the beginning and i haven't figured it out yet but I'm going to keep thinking about it. I'm not going to just say, oh, no, I've got what I've got, what I've got and I'll enjoy what I'm doing for a bit longer. I'll keep thinking about it. maybe there's something else I need to do that's going to be interesting and challenging that helps develop me and helps me understand who I am as a person. David, I'd be in all sorts of trouble if I didn't ask just a couple of concluding questions. Who were the greatest players you played with and against? Um, well, I have to uh, call them all blacks. I would have played against them all at some stage, but... I would say in terms of just the, the greatest natural athlete in capability would be Michael Jones. Um, I'd say in terms of the person who's made the most, you know, the biggest contribution to teams winning over an extended period of time, just because of their physical and mental um, leadership as much as anything, would be Sean Fitzpatrick. And then who do you want on the field to win the game for you? So that's sort of probably in my, during my era, John Kerwin, for sure. Um, because of just his you know, ability to score tries and his size and and speed. Funnily enough, Grant Fox is an interesting one to consider as well because he was not a great athlete. He was not a fast runner. No. He was not elusive or anything. But he was he was a rock and a foundation because he was so accurate. Kicked all his goals, always found touch, put the ball on the pin when he kicked it high, called all the right moves. He was an absolute foundation for which great athletes and, and great rugby could be played around him. He gave a lot of the, the the stability and the base 
for which we could all play off. All right. Now, I read somewhere, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, winning the World Cup wasn't the most satisfying of your achievements in rugby. No, I think that's correct. Winning the World Cup was the most satisfying. That was the, that was the, that's the biggie. The, the Baby Blacks victory over France the year before in 86 was probably equally as joyous. It was just like an amazing, you know, really young team written off by everyone, played incredibly well on the day and won. That was as, as joyous as the World Cup, but, but the biggest achievement, definitely the World Cup. All right. And we've got the World Cup not too far away. What are you going to be looking out for? This one's going to be really even. I think the top four teams, France, Ireland, New Zealand, and South Africa, uh, could all win it. I think probably France and Ireland are the favourites. So first ever to have two Northern Hemisphere teams as the favourites. Yeah. France at home should do well, but France have a habit of not quite getting there. They've been in three World Cup finals and not one. So I think it's going to be fascinating, absolutely fascinating. The draw's a bit funny, actually. One side of the draw, Australia's on that side, gets a pretty easy run through to the semifinals. The other side of the draw, the other three are on the other side. So um, it makes it a bit harder, but uh, it'll be interesting to see. Your Blacks? They can win. I don't think they, they're going in as favourites. I don't think they've got a right to go in as favourites in terms of form and, and you know, clearly world-class players because you, know, you need world-class players to win the World Cup. But no team really dominates in that regard. So I think it's going to be a really interesting tournament. And it's going to be who plays well on the day, not just in the lead-up. It's going to be the match, the final match. Whoever plays their best game ever in the final is going to be the team that wins. Two last questions. So we're living in good times, David? Yeah, always good times. Every job I've ever done, I've always thought, this is the best job I've ever done. I say that to give you an example of an optimist. Because I think we live in times where it's necessary to be optimistic, and I think that's most of the times. We are going down some blind alleys. We talked a bit about council culture and everything before. I think some of that stuff in the West is just not, we're not helping ourselves. Yeah, okay. But I think we'll see through that. I think some of the things that people are getting very uptight about now, that even they will look back. Other people look back and say, well, What was it all about? Yeah. We, we just, so yeah, I think we're living in good times, but I think that does depend on your, your outlook on life. And I, and I, and I am an optimist and I am a, risk taker and I'm good at adapting quickly if I don't quite get things right. So I guess in a way that's been a bit of the formula for me, be optimistic, be a risk taker, but adapt quickly and learn and, and um, change if you have to. So if we were to look back at that young lad playing rugby, he had a big night out with his mate when he was, what, 10 or 12 years old <laughs> and mum's running across the ground. <laughs> what advice, if you're going to speak to him right now, would you give him? To lead your life. As it comes, right there was Ongley Park, little you know park in Palmerston North. Be grounded, be here. You know, New Zealand regional, rural New Zealand. That's my that's my authenticity, and that's that's where I come. That's who I am. I've been. I grew never up. Never lost it. Never lost it. I don't think I've ever lost it. I probably get a bit, bit uh, <laughs> full of myself from time to time, but um, never lost the fundamental grounding and where I where I my family and where I've come from and and what I think is important. So that's another way of saying, you know, always have, have values and live by them, stick to them. But also I would say, be the best you can be in whatever you can be. Get out there, train hard, nothing comes easily, but you have got a whole lot of opportunity in front of you, just get out there and do it. And then finally, take people with you rather than, it's not about you. In the end, if you can carry people with you, if you can lead organizations, if you can lead teams, uh, if you can build businesses, if you can support um, not-for-profits. 
that's much more satisfying than being able to sort of think, oh, look, look how good I am. On that, David, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. It's been a great show. You've been listening to No Limitations. Mm-hmm.